0: Hey, gang, the 2012 Max Fund Drive is here. Your donations are what make this program possible each and every week. You can give right now at MaximumFun.org slash donate. That's MaximumFun.org slash donate. Do it! I'm Jesse Thorne. The comedian Moshe Kasher has a new memoir that just came out. The title pretty much says it all. It's called Casher in the Rye, the true tale of a white boy from Oakland who became a drug addict, criminal, mental patient, and then turned 16. As you might imagine from that subtitle, Moshe was sort of a problem child in school. Also, his mother was deaf, and he didn't hesitate to take advantage of that fact.
1: I would be called into a parent-teacher conference, but my mom, of course, is deaf, so she needed some translation. But the school system didn't think that there was a flaw in the plan of just asking the subject of the parent-teacher conference to also translate the information to the parent, <laughs> who, as if I didn't have a vested interest in not seeming like a, bi- a huge jerk. So they would say something. You can't just be like, well, your son's great. And we love him very much because there would there'd be an obvious problem there. So I would sort of shade it. you know. They would say your son is uh, becoming a severe behavioral problem and has been absent in school 30% of the classes this year. And I would translate something like, we think your son is having a few emotional problems, nothing severe, nothing too much, and he's 30% better than last year or whatever. You know? Eventually that crumbled and they realized what I was doing.
0: And I got to tell you, that story – barely scratches the surface.
1: It's Bullseye.
0: This week, comedian Moshe Kasher talks about his amazing new memoir. Hip-hop MC Latif the Truth Speaker reveals how jazz scat changed his life. And I talk to the directors of the new film, Undefeated. It's a sports documentary, it won an Oscar, and Mike Pesca says it's better than Hoop Dreams. All that and more coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week on the show, we're joined by a couple of our favorite critics to point out some stuff that is worth your time in the world of pop culture. This week, we are joined by our friends Genevieve Kosky, the assistant editor, and Josh Modell, the general manager of the AV Club. They come to us live from uh, their offices in Chicago, Illinois. Hey, Genevieve and Josh, how are you guys doing? Good. Uh,
2: Thanks for having us.
0: Let's start, Genevieve, with your pick, Being Elmo, uh, Puppeteer's Journey. This is a documentary about the man behind, or I guess underneath, Elmo, uh, Kevin Clash, who also does Hoots the Owl and Baby Natasha, among other characters, on Sesame Street. Um, it was uh, produced and directed by Constance Marks and uh, narrated by Whoopi Goldberg. Um, before we talk about it, let's, let's hear a little clip from the movie. It's amazing
2: to think that that big a star is not recognized in the street.
3: I'm a black man, I'm six feet tall, you know. They would never think that I performed as little red monster. When I was nine years old, it was just a dream that I had. Wow, I wish that I could, you know, you know, work with the Muppets.
0: Now, Elmo is by far the worst character on Sesame Street.
2: Oh, what? <laughs> oh, you're killing me, Jesse. <laughs> but Elmo loves you.
0: Oh, God, he loves me so much. Stop loving me.
2: Yeah, I think I was uh, right in the in the butter zone for uh, the the uh, Elmo mania. Um, so I, I definitely have probably a, or I know I have a lot more affection for Elmo than you do. But I honestly think that this documentary would appeal to anyone who has any sort of emotional connection to Sesame Street, The Muppets, or Jim Henson, um, because it's really just more about this puppeteer Kevin Clash. It's it's just more about his like single-minded focus on becoming a, a puppeteer or a Muppeteer and following in Jim Henson's footsteps and it's it's really a lovely story I mean I I, I grew up with Sesame Street like so many other people and I, I cried probably I think three or four times in this movie just uh it you know it's Sesame Street it's the Muppets it gets you
0: Josh let's talk about Check It Out with Dr. Steve Bruhl um man this is uh this is just one of the most uh, delightful programs on television in my book. <laughs> uh, it stars the Oscar nominee right he was an Oscar nominee John C. Riley as I don't know. yeah
2: it was it for Chicago I thought right yeah oh, okay
0: as a sort of weirdly vacant, sweet, somewhat belligerent uh, cable access television host named dr. Steve Brule. Um it is a spinoff from uh, Tim and Eric, awesome show, Great Job, and it is, I, it's very difficult to describe. Let, let's just play a little clip of, of uh, Dr. Bruhl conducting a, a, an interview.
4: So I walked on a plank with a captain of a broat named Gary, who knew a little bit about broats, not as much as me because I have five of broats. How come you don't have a captain's hat? This is a captain's hat.
5: Well, that's what this is what real captains wear.
4: What's the most important thing to know for going on a boat? Bro- the most important thing is safety. Nope. We have most no important problems. thing is uh stay in the boats.
5: I think that goes along with the safety issue.
4: I know. I have fibros.
5: Then you should know exactly what we're talking
4: about. I do.
5: Yeah, you have to picture the the spaced out character as well as the crazy hair and the sideways glasses. But the conceit of the of check it out with Dr. Steve Brule is that uh, Dr. Steve Brule is exploring one simple topic per episode. So the first episode of this season was called Boats, uh, which he pronounces every time broats for some reason. He mispronounces everything. He he's much dumber than he was, I think, even then on Awesome Show. But that's uh, even that that may be hard to believe. Anyway, so he's uh, he's exploring broats. And he goes down to the marinara uh, to, to have an interview with a, with a broad captain. I, it's hard to describe without making it sound like something you'd never in a million years want to watch. Uh, but fans of Awesome Show should
0: definitely check it out. Oh, I totally didn't do that on purpose. Josh Modell, uh, the general manager of the AV Club, recommends season two of Check It Out with Dr. Steve Brule, which is airing now, Sunday's on Cartoon Network's Adult Swim. Genevieve Kosky, the AV Club's assistant editor, recommends Being Elmo, A Puppeteer's Journey. It's just out on Netflix and digital download. The DVD is coming April 3rd. The AV Club is online at avclub.com. You can also listen to their smash hit podcast, Reasonable Discussions. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Moshe Kasher. We're going to talk about his jaw-dropping new memoir in a minute. But first, I wanted to give you a feel for his stand-up comedy. Here's a clip of Moshe performing on Late Night with Jimmy
1: Fallon. Nice to be here. Nice to be among the beautiful people. I see you. Thanks. Yeah, me too. I see a lot of scary stuff out on the road. I travel a lot for comedy. I, I I was in an airport recently. You ever you ever see somebody and you're just like, oh, so you're what's wrong with everything in the world? I saw a woman eating a a king size Snicker bar by scooping out the ice cream. A king size Snicker ice cream by by scooping it out with a bag of Fritos scoops that she had just kind of hoisted here like a feed bag on her belt, just scooping and sucking and scooping and sucking. And I couldn't look away, you know, because it was like a thousand railroad trains colliding again and again and again. And you're not supposed to maintain prolonged eye contact with a person with this look on your face. It's like, yuck. You're not supposed to do that. But I couldn't look away. I wanted to, like, videotape what she was doing, not to, like, put it up on YouTube and humiliate her. Just so that in, like, 18 years when she looks down at her destroyed body and is like, what happened? I'll pop out of a bush like, that's what happened! What did you think was going to happen? So,
0: maybe... Arrogant isn't quite the best word to describe Moshe Kasher's stage persona as a stand-up comedian. Maybe it's brash. Um, I I first saw him perform stand-up comedy in Oakland five or eight years ago. And at the time, I thought it must just be the defense mechanism of a skinny Jewish hipster standing in front of a crowd of a 100 or so uh, mixed-race people in the East Bay, in the Bay Area, who might just be a little bit ambivalent about a skinny Jewish guy telling jokes at them. When we became friends, I learned that Moshe grew up in Oakland going to public school, and I figured that that brashness was just a white kid's defense. Then I read Moshe's memoir, Casher in the Rye, and I learned that it was a defense for so much more stuff. Casher's book is the story of growing up a skinny Jewish kid in a black neighborhood. But it's also the story of growing up with two deaf parents who divorced when he was a toddler. The story of commuting between a hippie mom on welfare in Oakland and an Orthodox Jewish father in Brooklyn. The story of drug and alcohol addiction, a mental hospital a, an accusation of rape, a thousand petty crimes, dropouts from an almost uncountable number of uh, middle and high schools, and it only covers Moshe's life up until age 15 or so. Um, so you could see how he might need to be funny and brash as a defense mechanism um moshe uh, welcome to bullseye it's great
1: to have you on the show thanks what an introduction thanks for having me
0: i look moshe it's become fashionable to say this and uh perhaps at this point it's even unfashionable but i really don't think there's any way other way to put this i read this book and my reaction was whoa that's cray
1: (laughs) it is cray indeed it is cray and that was going to be the title of the book originally, that <laughs> "Crave" by Moshe Kasher. <laughs> uh, it was, cra- I mean, it was cray to Live." I, um...
0: um, so gosh, I think the only way to talk about this uh, situation is um, just to take it one step at a time and um, just talk about what it's like to have two deaf parents when you're hearing, which. You are, we should explain.
1: Yeah, this is why I can respond so uh, cleverly to all of your questions, because I'm able to instantly hear them. Yeah, well, I mean, you could be you could be reading my lips. That's true, except it, you have a microphone in front of them.
0: That's true. Um, tell me, do you, do you remember when you realized that, like, for example, just when you realized that other people's parents weren't
1: deaf? The first memory I felt of difference was when my mom, when I finally developed enough of a shame mechanism to be embarrassed by my mom's speaking voice and um it it hadn't occurred to me to be embarrassed until the day that it did occur to me and uh i lived my whole life at that point just cringing that my mom would speak in public and also cringing at my own reaction to my own mom you know she talks like you know a deaf sort of mangled banshee you know and uh there's I mean it's just the reality of the situation but I I remember always trying to speak for my mom not because she couldn't deal with social interactions on her own but because really I was trying to hide from this kind of like mm-hmm, situation that I you know How
0: how, how old are we talking about?
1: Oh, this is probably 5 years old.
0: I mean that's like that's like really young to have that feeling of being embarrassed by your parents I think.
1: Well, right. And maybe I got – yeah, maybe I did get a, a taste of a, a sh- parental shame quicker than other people because, yeah, I, I, I don't remember thinking, oh, no, my mom's deaf. I remember thinking, oh, no, my mom talks like that. and Nobody else seems to. And then I had the uh, – my dad, like you said, was an Orthodox Jew, and when he would come visit us in Oakland, I remember being super ashamed of the yarmulke that he would force us to wear in Oakland And uh, I think that shame is sort of the the hidden thread that's sort of woven throughout everything. You know, I was ramping up with shame. And this is is just the the sort of foundation of shame that I had. But I had everything to be embarrassed about. What were the circumstances of your folks splitting up? Well, my mom... Met my dad at some sort of Deaf Olympic event. You know, I don't know if you know about the Deaf Olympics, but they are they're incredibly quiet affairs. Um, <laughs> one thing about Deaf people that people don't know is that they all fart very unashamedly. Speaking of the shame mechanism, n- because they don't hear the fart there is a cultural norm to not care. I mean, I think they know that they're supposed to be embarrassed about it, but they can't translate it into their real brain because they just can't hear themselves fart, so they all walk around farting
0: because there's no feed there's the feedback loop isn't the same, so they just it it would take a lot of we would have to you would have to have the equivalent of a of a speech therapist, right?
1: A um, fart therapist to work will. with, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: In order to get the feedback loop w- well enough, so that they could tr- work on it. Yeah, yeah,
1: you would have to have some sort of visual cue, like you yeah. would have to do a, a kind of a a flag ceremony every time that a deaf person farted. That would represent. We should, I should mention now. for
0: people who are listening that you're doing a sort of semaphore <laughs> move. <laughs>
1: well, I felt like flag, yeah, flag <laughs> ceremony felt maybe, yeah. But oh, oh, but back to my parents splitting. My mom found this guy. But they moved in together immediately, and it was very quickly became a very toxic sort of situation where they were in this kind of desperate sick love and um, It lasted for a lot longer than the desperate sick love that I have in my life, but long enough to, for my brother to be born and for me to be born, and when we were nine months old, my mom had had enough you know she she claims and i don 't you know when you're a divorced kid. You get, these two, you get these stories right, from both sides of your family. You get one, one narrative from your father, one narrative from your mother, and you have to kind of weave the two together and decide which thing you believe and which you don't. But um, according to my mom, he was, you know, it was an incredibly abusive household physically and psychologically. And one day she told my dad, okay, we're going on vacation to Oakland, and we never came back. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne.
0: My guest is the comedian and author Moshe Kasher. His new book is Cashier in the Rye, the true tale of a white boy from Oakland who became a drug addict, criminal, mental patient, and then turned 16. The book delves into the many stories of his young life, including the divorce of his two deaf parents. There's something really hard about what you said, that trying to piece together your parents from the stories that your other parent told about your parents when your folks are divorced. I remember trying to figure out as a kid whether my mom was a drug dealer (laughs) based on my... Because what happens is if your parents have an acrimonious divorce what they usually do is not say anything about each other because they're trying to protect you. Oh, my mom did not get that memo. Okay. That was no,
1: she did not well, know about that conventional and behavior. And then
0: when they do say something about the other one, it's when they're upset or right. when they're when they're not being appropriate. You know, the to the extent to which they're not they don't say anything may vary. Right. Um but when they do say something, it's not when they're being kind. And so they'll say something kind of crazy. And so, you know, when, one time I remember my dad said, you know, well, your mother was a drug dealer. And I don't know whether that just means my mom had drugs and she sold them to her friends sometimes. Like many people that were born in in, 19, in the early 1940s and thus were 25 in 1968. Sure. Did. Um, or whether that actually means that she was a full-time professional <laughs> drug dealer for a length I don't know.
1: Did you ever ask her? <sighs> no. Mom. I don't want to get into that with my mom. <laughs> mom, uh, can you help me out here? I'm real sick and I could just I could use like a five spot of horse. Is that possible? <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think that's that's true. You know, I, 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 we didn't have that filter, unfortunately. Like, my, my grandmother was a divorcee. Her mother was a divorcee, which goes – I mean – and I believe her mother's mother was a divorcee, which goes back – This is it, like
0: divorcees in the old country.
1: Exactly, right. I mean, in that time, my great-grandmother being a divorcee, it's like you would be you know thrown into a river to see if you could float, essentially. I mean, it was – so, divorce was a kind of holy ritual in my family. And my grandmother, she could not speak about my grandfather without, you know, her fists going white with rage and just shoot, that bastard, that piece of. F-. Every time she would mention him, and so my mom was very comfortable with bringing that kind of dialogue into our family unit. My brother was uh, had firmly chosen his side on my, fa- uh, on my father, so my father was a kind of mythical, you know, uh, superhero to my dad. And my, I was the youngest kid, so I was kind of sided with my mom, but I also identified the toxicity of the dialogue, and I just didn't, I did not know what was true, you know. And even as a little kid, I remember. I remember being cognizant of the fact that I was getting two uh, opposing stories from each parent, and so neither of the stories that I was hearing could possibly be true. And so I waddled around in the dark trying to figure out what was what. Until because I could they're, both, they're both crazy. That's right. You yeah.
0: Even as a 10-year-old, you can recognize no, these are definitely both wrong.
1: Yeah, exactly. These are crazy people, and they're my parents. <laughs> So that was that was the fertile ground of toxicity that I grew up in I, it, and it was a it was an intense situation and there was a lot more I mean you know there's a lot more weirdness
0: you had these two households and the what's remarkable about them to me is that you know besides the fact that both of your parents were deaf, culturally these households could not have been more different and you were traveling between them
1: well that's yeah that's true i i might when well basically when my mom left my dad in order to fill in the gaps of the family that had left him he plunged into the deepest the deepest of deep pools of religiosity back in in brooklyn i mean he was a member of the uh, the Satmar Hasidic community. When I went back, he had married this woman who was a Satmar Hasid, you know. uh, And what that means is, for those of you that don't know, the Satmar Hasidim are the most weird of all the Hasidic groups. So let me say that again so that you can really plunge into the meaning of that. Of all the fat, bearded, waddling penguins that you see waddling around Brooklyn and Jerusalem, my dad joined up with the group that was the most outside of the margins of society. Not to be unkind or anything. No, I mean, look, this, it, to be that, it's like being among the fattest of all Walmart shoppers. It's like a very high level that you have to jump into. And I, not, I love those people. I, I, if you can believe it, I identify with them with them strongly. When I see a chassid walking down the street, I think, oh, hi. And they do not think the same thing about me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, and so I, w- I flew back to Brooklyn to find, to just discover this. And my dad would kind of, I was coming straight from Oakland. I was this little boy who was super California, the ex-validocious. I was, like, listening to hip-hop back in— uh, well, that was another great thing about having deaf parents, is that I could listen to the most vile gangster rap possible with my mom in the car with my mom, turned all the way up as my mom happily drove along next to us.
0: I was particularly fond of uh, you listening to uh, Too Short, Oakland, L- Oakland hip-hop legend Too Short. Absolutely. Just known for just his just— Amazing profanity and vulgarity, I would say almost charming profanity and <laughs> vulgarity, and, uh, and you're uh, just imagining any mom in the world remarking positively upon it in any way. And your mom's remark was because she was deaf. Right. This is great. I can feel the bass.
1: Yeah, she, Which I think would have made Too Short very proud. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. I mean, it was intense. I like I said. And my mom hated men. And my grandma hated men. And then I listened to Too Short and E Forty and Spice One. My female role models hated men. My male role models hated women. And I had no one left not to hate. I. I mean, there and your was your father. Essentially, lived in space as far as you
0: were concerned. <laughs> from where you live nine no, my months my father out of the lived
1: year. on the set of Yentl essentially <laughs> i would fly home to brooklyn and i would he from this reality where my mom is this Total hippie. We're eating tempeh and carob, and and you know, the, and we're total hippies on on welfare. And there's all these gatherings back in Oakland. And then I flew back to Brooklyn, and my dad would pick us up at the airport and drive us straight to the Hasidic Jewish barber and sort of shove me in front of a fat old pogrom survivor and say, "Fix this." And he would give me a weird Hasidic haircut, as close to a Hasidic haircut as was possible for my California bowl cut. Throw a yarmulke on me and then we would travel to seagate which is the community that he lived in here's how you get to seagate if you take the f train in brooklyn to the last possible stop to stillwell avenue and you get off you walk past coney island past the projects past the people of color through a gate through a time portal to pre-nazi europe you will (laughs) then arrive in seagate where people are still using horse-drawn buggy and spitting at redheads because they're bad luck
0: What's remarkable to me about this is that your two parents have both—I mean, they both very clearly had their own tremendous pain in their lives, both in their own relationships, busting up and, you know, whatever their own difficulties were, and had gone into these subcultural groups— that were for outsiders and for refugees. You know, your father, you know, moved to, you write about in the book about your father becoming uh, ultra-Orthodox in part because it it was a society that he could go to and have a wife and a family. And even though he was still a little bit of an outsider because he wasn't born into that culture, it was a place where... He could marry someone and be part of something,
1: right? I mean, I describe but my. You're stuck. Oh, I. These are very different. Everything is splitting me down the middle. My relationship with men and women is split down the middle. My relationship with Judaism and secularism is split down the middle. My relationship with being black and being white is split down the middle. I mean. You know, I just, everything about me was unclear. I just did not have any clarity at all. And, uh, yeah, I describe my dad and his relationship with the Satmar community as he's not like an actual Satmar. He's, he's more like in the mafia. You know, you'll have like a kind of a thuggish enforcer but not a made guy. So my dad was like a kind of not made guy in that community. And he lived in this community because it gave him answers, and that's the beauty of religion: is that it gives you answers to all of the questions. So when your family leaves you and you've got this gaping hole, you can turn into this world and say, "Oh, here are all the answers I've been looking for." And I think he found them, but I definitely didn't.
0: And in fact, you know, in in that community, those answers are often literal answers. I mean, it is like ask a question to a scholar slash rabbi who can give you an answer to that question. In fact, much of the effort, much of the scholarly effort is dedicated towards answering questions. Can I do this? What's the rule to this? Et cetera, et cetera. Interpretations.
1: Right. Yeah. And I, I have, there's a passage in the book where I finally, you know, when I was growing up, my dreams, my, if you had asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would have said, excuse me, I would have said, um, I want to be a baseball player or a rebbe. <laughs> Th- those are my two goals. Now, I didn't want to be either of those things. I now realize that they just filled in this kind of deficit in, in, in that I thought that I had. Baseball for my manhood, rebbe for my soul, and truly I didn't have either. Uh, and I went and I asked the rabbi of this community in, in Seagate, I said to him, we took a ride in his – weird uh, Oldsmobile wooden sided uh, station wagon, which everybody in that community, they all drive the same cars. They all have the same outfit. They all have the same glasses. I don't truly know what the the, what the car thing is about, but apparently there was some sort of uh, automotive deal with Oldsmobile. I mean, they are still Jews after all. Um, so anyway,
0: someone did some numerology and came up with Oldsmobile station wagon. <laughs> That's
1: right. Oldsmobile has the numeric equivalent to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But I asked the the guy, uh, the guy. I, so I asked the guy. I go. Uh, I asked this rabbi, should I be religious? Because I didn't know. That that was a taboo question.
0: This is when you're like 12, 13 years old.
1: I'm a, maybe even, yeah, maybe 10 years old. I go, I don't know what to do. I'm split in the middle. And I don't know if I'm going to be religious when I grow up. And he just looked at me. It wasn't cruel. It was baffled. He'd never been asked that question before. Like he just, he did not answer that question. He sort of drove on in silence for about five minutes. And finally was just like, I don't think I can help you with that question. Now, you might see that as a great irony. This is a rabbi. His job, you would think, is to answer that particular question. But the world he lived in, was the questions he was used to ask were, if a candle is burning at 5 p.m. on a Friday and the sun goes down, and at the moment that the sun goes down, the candle tips over, your curtains set on fire, but it is Shabbos— can you put the fire out, or should you allow your entire house to burn down? He would have been able to say, well, in Mishnayas, you know, the Rambam says blah, 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 and Rashi says blah, blah, blah. He would have had a great erudite explanation on why you should do one thing or the other. But this basic religious question, should I do this, he just didn't get it. He did not get how a person would ask that question. Of course you should be. You'll be killed if you don't. After a break, Moshe Kasher will talk about one of the biggest fights he ever had with
0: his mother. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI, public radio international.
2: Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at putthison.com and by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com.
6: I remember listening to Jordan Jesse Go, and there was a, just a good sense of community amongst people who liked the same things, were interested in the same things, had a similar sense of humor. It had a very warm and cozy feel that really drew me to it. Hi, I'm Rebecca O'Malley. I'm a donor to Fun.org. I was thinking a lot about independent media and, and what it meant to me to have a show that I really like that was so specifically attuned to my interest and how much I valued that. And so that was an important part of my decision. It's been wonderful just within my lifetime to see this whole area of media pop up where people are creating very specific work that can appeal directly to the things that you're interested in. It's wonderful to have, but it's also very fragile. The only way that you can see uh, it continuing is if people care enough to support it.
0: Support Maximum Fun today. Just visit maximumfund.org donate. Thank you. Hey, gang, it's me, Jesse Thorne, the host of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne, the titular host of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And this is a very special extended edition of this episode of Bullseye. Um, We have got uh, uh, basically an extravaganza version of this interview with Moshe Kasher. We could only fit... Uh, we could only fit a certain amount of it onto the radio, but we loved this interview so much that we wanted you to hear it um, and I want to introduce you to the staff behind bull 'seye if I might standing to my right or sitting to my right at the microphone is the editor who who frankly makes it possible to uh, offer more than one edit of an interview. <laughs> (laughs) Uh, Mr. Nick White Hey Nick Hello everybody And to my left Our producer Julia Smith Hey Julia Hey now I wanted to bring Julia and Nick On the show Because we have changed So much about The Sound of Young America When we changed it Into Bullseye And uh, so much about What we do here That I I thought It made sense To introduce Nick and Julia And have them talk A little bit about What they do here On the show So you don't think That it is Still literally Me doing everything in my free time in my apartment. I mean, we still are at my house. That's true. Um, but uh, these guys have real jobs that they really get paid for. So, Julia, why don't we start with you? Tell You're the, you're the producer of Bullseye. Tell me a little bit about what you do on the show.
2: Well, uh, now that the show is Bullseye, and of course we have this awesome new format, which is uh, we've got basically all kinds of contributors alongside the interviews that we were doing before. So we're bringing in regularly the uh, people from the A.B. Club. Um, we're continuing to do stuff with Andrew Nas from Cooking Blunts, who is awesome.
0: Well, I mean, you, you've brought in all kinds of amazing stuff. I mean, just recently on this show, uh, we had a series of uh, a series of segments. We've got one left that hasn't run yet, I think. Um, that was uh, that were God's memoirs. Right. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's no joke to have uh, the brilliant Seth Morris reading those things. And those things are all written by David Javerbaum, who was executive producer of The Daily Show. Um, you know, this is heavy hitter-ass talent that we're bringing into Bullseye to uh, put together segments for you. In addition to, you know, you're also in charge of coordinating, you know, all of our regular uh, segments, the Casper Hauser segments, Jordan segments. Jordan ranks America exactly. Um, all of the comedy segments and Nick, you're actually here physically in the studio for the first time because you just moved here from Chicago.
5: That is true. I just got here probably about ten days ago as we taped this, so I'm still adjusting and getting really uh, into the sunshine. It's very exciting.
0: You do have a little bit of a nice bass tan going mm-hmm.
5: there. Yeah, I've been working on it.
0: <laughs> you, Nick, Nick you, Nick, you and I have been working together for a really long time. We met in college, and part of the story of The Sound of Young America in my mind is me being building up the budget to be able to hire you first first when I desperately needed help on an intercutting an interview that was you know six years ago five years ago and then for one day a week, then two days a week, then three days a week, and now finally you've joined us here at MaximumFun.org full-time and actually taken the step of moving 1,500, 2,000 miles out from Chicago.
5: Yeah, it's absolutely exciting. And I remember that first interview I cut for you, and you had to convince me to take, I think, $50 from you or something for like a few days of work. Um, so anyway, but it, I mean, it's really exciting to finally have that come full circle. And I mean, we've known each other almost 10 years, um, and there are really good things that happen in Chicago. We made a good connection with the AV Club and that's a segment that I still produce every month or every couple of weeks and it's become a really big part of Bullseye as we brought in this new exciting format and the other things that I do on the show um, are basically taking all these segments that Julia puts together and making them a little bit shorter and more exciting and just more fun to listen to because the magic of this is those things don't come together as seamlessly as they sound on the air.
0: Yeah, I mean one of the things that I'm most proud of about the development of the show is how we've taken the show from from sort of a a ramshackle production based on my very limited production skills. And we've added people who have skills that I don't necessarily have, you know frankly I'm an unpleasant man and no one wants to help me get their guests on our show and Julia is uh, Julia is charming and, and good looking delightful everyone wants to put a guest on our show uh, Nick you're a brilliant editor you have skills that I've I've never frankly been able to muster and so when we have an interview just to take an example like last year we had a, a great interview with Mavis Staples um, one of my favorite interviews that we've ever had the chance to do on the show and Mavis Staples Staples is an all-time hero of mine. You know, I love the Staples Singers more than anything, and so, you know, maybe five years ago, I would have thought I'd like to have Mavis Staples on the show. In fact, I can say, honestly, I did think five years ago when her last album came out that I'd like to have Mavis Staples on the show. What having a staff like this allows us to do is, Julia can do a lot more than what I could do then. Back then, I could maybe send an email, and if I just didn't get a response to that email, that was the end of that line of inquiry. Because Julia's... A professional producer, Julia can be the person who's calling on the phone and get and doing the work to set up interviews where you know where, where it isn't just something where somebody you know jumps at the opportunity, which is rarely the case, frankly.
2: Or when schedules don't line up exactly the first time you try it.
0: Yeah, setting up studios in other places so that we can do something. For example, that Mavis Staples interviewed. To continue with that example, was something where she was in Chicago at the studios of WBEZ. Nick was engineering in Chicago. We rented a studio in Chicago so that we could get her her schedule to line up with ours and get her on this show because I wanted on the show so bad, and I think that one of the things that made that interview work so well was the way that Nick cut it. You know, Nick took took what I think you know. I thought it was a great interview. She's an w- amazing woman, but he wove in her discography in such a way that it was illustrative and really brought the interview to life in a way that we couldn't have done with the resources that we used to have. And that's because of people like you out there who listen to this show and support it. The reality is that you know. <laughs> Frankly, we're on a bunch of radio stations around the country, and we love being on radio stations, and, um, you know, we're very proud to be on radio stations, but the amount of Resources that come in from being on those radio stations is very, very limited. the real thing that pays for this show is people who listen to this podcast and support it that way
5: and of all the podcasts and max Fun um, and all the great podcasts, this is frankly the one that takes the most resources to produce and, it, and the reason we continue to do it every week is because we really believe in uh, bringing these kinds of uh, interviews and these kinds of recommendations every week. We really believe in bullseye and that's why we continue to
0: do it yeah absolutely I mean this is something that, this is intense I mean, I mean the switch from The Sound of Young America has has brought m- more resources not just from YouTube but from me as well you know every aspect of what we're doing has become more challenging for all of us and I'm really proud of the work that we're all doing but it is asked more of us in terms of resources and th- what that means is that we need more support from you guys so the way that you support this show if you care about it is to go to maximumfund.org/donate and there's a level for every Every amount of ability to give, you know, whether you're a student or a CEO, you will be able to find a level at which you can support maximumfund.org.
5: And there are all kinds of thank yous. You can go to maximumfund.org right now to find them out. You can be a friend of the family, a Diamond Friendship Circle member, all kinds of great things. We're going to be back a little bit later on the show to talk about more details with regard to those gifts.
0: Yeah, the really important thing is that you stand up and support this show. And don't, you know, don't wait. Do it now. MaximumFun.org slash donate. Do it. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian and author Moshe Kasher. His book is called Kasher in the Rye, the true tale of a white boy from Oakland who became a drug addict, criminal, mental patient, and then turned 16. When we left off, we were talking about Moshe's two lives, one with his father in a Hasidic community in Brooklyn and the other with his hippie mother in Oakland. At his Oakland middle school, he struggled to find a place in the social pecking order.
1: The thing is in Oakland, you know, just like the letterman jacket and the cool jock in the kind of uh, you know 80s 90s movie of about high school, you know those are the cool kids. The cool kids in Oakland, the top rung was were gangsters and crack dealers and that was like whoa, look at those kids. You know, it was like that was the equivalent of the football quarterback was like whoa, that's pooky. it's pooky, y'all. And I, I I had started started to ingratiate myself into that upper power clique. And uh, then I got sent to Portable 3, which was uh, – and which happened very publicly. You know, They c- sort of called me out and said, Mr. Kasher, if you could report to Portable 3. Now, everybody knew what Portable 3 was, which was the special ed portable at the back of the school. And that was the end of my foray into the popular kids' class. And it really came to a um, – A final end when I – there was this kid, Jono, that was having a birthday party at uh, Berkeley, Iceland. Did you ever go there? Yeah, sure. I went
0: to Berkeley, Iceland. (laughs) So
1: Berkeley, Iceland was the highest of heights in the social ins uh, ins and outs of the middle school community in the East Bay. It was this ice skating rink. And this kid, Jono, was having a birthday party and all of the cool, popular kids were going. I mean it's a very familiar trope. Uh, to a story like this And I When they found out That I was in Portable 3 Turned their back on me And I was not invited However I did find A discarded invitation On the ground In a classroom At Claremont And I snatched it up And ran home with it In my pocket And I thought I stared at it Thinking Oh my god What am I doing I'm not invited To this party But nonetheless I, um, I stole $20 From my mother's purse My mother's Slender welfare purse I bought Jono a gift, which is to the worst. And I went to Iceland, and I I crawled out onto the ice, and I started skating with these girls. And I was like doing I was doing pirouettes and stuff because my grandma had sent me to uh, figure skating classes. Because as a man hating woman, I think she wanted to make sure that I wasn't manly in any way. So, <laughs> but I didn't quite wasn't quite old enough to know that like cool kids don't do like spins or whatever or t stops or whatever. So I'm skating along, and the kid comes up to me, and he goes, like, what are you doing here? And I was like, what? what? You know that way that people go what when they're thinking of a good lie to say? What? And he's like, you did, I didn't invite you to my party, dude. And I was like, y- you did. Look at my invitation. Of course, it's some, like, Sarah Blakely is the name scrawled on the invitation. And I hand him this gift that I got, and he stared down at me, and he looked back up at me. And in that moment, some of the iciness between us melted, you know, uh, no pun intended, you know, he looked at this gift and he realized that I'd gotten him something. He looked me in the eyes and we shared this moment of humanity. And then he said, get the f- out of my party. You f- bitch. And so I left. And that was the, the last time that I attempted to be a part of the cool kids. And I think maybe the next day or the next week, I found an escape hatch into that group of screw ups. Um in the back of the school and I checked out of the entire social strata. I was go- I was done. I was done.
0: I mean, that
1: being done
0: that you're describing was pretty much a complete doneness. Yeah. <laughs> like there's no... There was no intermediary. I mean, you pretty much between the ages of... Thirteen and fifteen were just, just, I mean, out of control. Yeah, I, I don't say that from a from an adult perspective. I mean, I say that from from empathizing with you reading the book, like just, just wild.
1: Yeah, I was I was feral. I was a feral kid, man. I was. um i I was already had severe and i didn 't mention it we haven 't talked about this yet but i it 's not that I just fell into this badness. I was already displaying a lot of uh, behavioral issues which is pro, pro, part of the reason that I was sent to portable three in the first place i 'd been in therapy since I was four years old, literally since I was four years old, I got sent to therapy and um, and my you know I was in therapy regularly from that point on until I was about sixteen. Um, I was in family therapy and I was in individual therapy and eventually group therapy and eventually rehab and eventually mental hospitals and you know, I, I, when I was done, all of these things before I found this group of kids was ramping me up to feel ashamed and different and split. You know, I'm not black enough. I'm not white enough. I'm not hearing enough. I'm not deaf enough. I'm not Jewish enough. I'm not secular enough. I'm not man enough. I'm not woman enough. I'm not baseball enough. I'm not Rebbe enough. I just was so different and felt so ashamed all the time. And I found this group of kids... That were all just like me. They were all totally different and ruined and and ashamed of themselves. And we popped into an exit portal, you know, like a Mario warp zone, past the social strata of Claremont and Oakland public schools. We weren't. It wasn't that we we were. There's a book about Oakland called Way Past Cool. Uh, I think it's Jeff Jess Mowry that wrote it. Yeah, I, that, I read that when I was. I remember reading that when I was when an, I was thirteen. It's or an so, odd yeah. book, yeah. And but that title sticks out to me real, real hard. Way past cool is exactly what we were. We weren't trying to be cool within the confines of what was understandable at Claremont. We were way past cool. We were into our own, th- we our own thing. We were we were the damaged kids of Oakland. And, you know, you relate a lot to it, because I think it's a very particular time in history where all every family was broken. And every white kid was wanted to be black and everybody, you know, it was this very particular time. And um, I didn't have a filter. That's the thing. I was was 12 years old when I first started getting high. Uh, So there was no, I had no adult brain to think, oh, don't don't mess this up. Don't go down that path. I just thought, oh, my God, I found a path. I'm going down it. And very, very quickly, I had, I, like you said, I was getting arrested all the time, and I was in so much trouble. But I didn't see it as anything other than I'm doing my thing, I'm with my people, and all of these adults and these square bears don't understand what I'm about, you know?
0: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian and author Moshe Kasher. His memoir is called Kasher in the Rye, the true tale of a white boy from Oakland who became a drug addict, criminal, mental patient, and then turned sixteen. There was this. There's this part in it towards the end of the book where, um, one of your, uh, one of your friends is remembering, uh, basically a freakout. Yeah. That he had when you guys were this age, when you guys were fourteen, fifteen years old, and it's uh freak out that basically changed his mind physically changed his mind forever He's, he says you know he never felt the same afterwards um and it's a freak out that started with him taking just some a drug that was
1: made right.
0: by another 15-year-old.
1: That's right. Ozone is what they called it. It's so weird to think back on that memory because it's so bizarre to think of some 15-year-old chemist essentially with a beaker going, well, what will I put in this now? I'll call it ozone or whatever. Yeah. But that was what was going down. We were all selling acid. uh, And so
0: that that kid, when he's, as an adult, is describing that to you. And you sort of excerpt his description of it to you. And the thing that he marvels at isn't so much how crazy that this situation is, although it was crazy and insane that he just took this drug that this other teenager gave him. Um, But that... He, thinking about it, he he thinks like, isn't it weird that the only thing that we seem to actually want was just to hang out with our friends? That's right, yeah. And somehow we everything was in the way of that, and or we put everything in the way of that, everyone was putting everything in the way of that, like everything worked together, so that that was all we wanted was to have a place
1: yeah i I think about that a lot, you know I mean really, it seemed at the time like what we were doing was totally normal, and that the consequences of what we were doing was only because of adults. Putting barriers between us and this very logical, reasonable thing that we wanted to do, which was B12, steal our parents' money, hang out, drop acid, drink 40s, smoke weed, tag walls, break windows, beat up kids. I mean, it was just very normal kind of meat and potatoes, hanging out stuff. But it, that's right. That's all we wanted was to just be around each other, you know, because game of stickball, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's totally. Kick the can, uh, you know, beat the kid. You know these these old familiar <laughs> games from the old country. Eat the mushrooms. Eat, yeah, eat the shroom. Uh, you know, melt the brain, ride the snake, all of these things. Um, yeah, I mean we were all like that. We were all we were we started selling acid when we were uh, 13, and um, then that became a daily thing. We were dropping acid at 13 pretty much every other day. And then um, I, I think you're right. Like When I talked to my friend Donnie, who was my best friend growing up, um, about this drug, ozone, which has essentially melted his brain. I mean, he looked at me after taking it. He puked up bile right in front of the, this like big group of this coffee shop. Where everybody was sort of staring at him. And then he grabbed me, and he goes, he just had thrown up in front of like four Everyone and he goes. Don't let anyone see me throw up. And I was like, um, that just happened in the past, so I'm pretty sure we can't do anything about that. And then he looks up at me and goes, "Wait, who are you?" And I was like, "All right, I think we have we have a small problem." But that was all. All that stuff was all in the name of. I just want to hang out with my friends. You know, I just want to be cool. I just want to be okay.
0: At the same time that this was happening, um, like your. Your anger at your mom was just
1: off the charts. I think that's right. I don't know where it came from, and I don't know where it went because it's not there anymore, thank God. But that's what would happen when my mom would get in my face about stealing her money or, or she would try to stop me from basically wanting to hang out with my friends. I would just get seized with this kind of absolutely out of control anger i would i would i, I would i remember i one day i threw, I took my own shoe off and threw it at a window in our house and the window shattered or i would I would grab the kitchen table and upturn it I would throw my mom against the wall i would i remember one time um we were driving along in her bug uh, we have this we have the sixty eight bug that my has been in my family my whole life, and my mom's screaming at me driving and i'm screaming back at her and she's screaming at me and I finally just punch the windshield and the entire windshield just shatters while we're driving i mean it's just like spider webs just and uh i looked at the windshield and i looked at my mom and my anger was very immediately gone when i saw the evidence of what i'd done but um my mother's anger had ramped up a bit uh, because i punched her windshield out but that was the kind of stuff i couldn't control myself i couldn't control that kind of rage and i think uh the only thing that I found that would kind of calm me down was was that was drinking a 40 or, or smoking a joint, and that's not a good coping mechanism with your anger when you're 13 years old. It's, uh, I just got to go get high.
0: You literally so, attacked your mother.
1: Yeah, I did literally attack my mother because, and, and my grandma. Um, and anybody that would stand in, and you know, it wasn't just my mom and my grandma that I hated. I hated adults. I hated every adult I'd ever met in my life. I, 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 I bristled with rage for adults for what they were doing to me, which was stopping me from doing fun stuff like, you know, taking ozone. Um, and my mom, of course, and my grandma were the adults that were most directly in my way. And when she, when I got to the point where my humanity was starting to fray at the edges, she was still right there. And so, unfortunately, and I'm not proud of it, but I'm not ashamed of it either because it just doesn't seem like me anymore. When she would get in my face, I would attack her. I would hit her. I would bite her. I would throw her against the wall. I would break things. And I would scare her, but um, she would scare me too. I mean, it was a really toxic, toxic life that I led. We should explain that You're, you're a pretty nice guy now. I, I try to be, yeah. It's been my experience. Yeah, I mean, I... Dressed nice and uh, yeah and clean. i've I've changed quite a bit um you know, I don't think I would have made it i i to be frank i if something very dramatic hadn't have happened to to write my course i don't it's not that I think I would have been at this point I would have been some kind of angry, toxic adult. I think I probably would have been dead i don't think I would have made it
0: it's bullseye I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian and writer Moshe Kasher. His new memoir is called. Casher in the Rye, the true tale of a white boy from Oakland who became a drug addict, criminal, mental patient, and then turned 16. It it was actually a translator that was um, sort of one of the instigators of the change in your life. And you had always had to have these translators be part of your educational process or not always you had you had essentially you had spent the first like 10 or 12 years of your um schooling gaming the system by uh serving as your own translator and right and shading things in your direction
1: yeah it's an incredible in an incredible colossal logic flaw for the first many years of my life when i was getting in trouble at school I would be called into a parent-teacher conference, but my mom, of course, is deaf, so she needed some translation. But the school system didn't think that there was a flaw in the plan of just asking the subject of the parent-teacher conference to also translate the information to the parent, who, as if I didn't have a vested interest in not seeming like a, bi- a huge jerk. So they would say something. You can't just be like, your son's great. And we love him very much because there would there'd be an obvious problem there. So I would sort of shade it. you know. They would say your son is uh, becoming a severe emotional, uh, a severe behavioral problem and has been absent in school 30% of the classes this year. And I would translate something like, we think your son is having a few emotional problems, nothing severe, nothing too much, and he's 30% better than last year or whatever. You know? Eventually that crumbled and they realized what I was doing. So the
0: translators have this—that you ended up getting have this sort of prime (laughs) directive-like. That's right. um, Rule that they can't; that they have to serve solely as translators. It's just their job to interpret, and not to, you know. And an interpreter's job is to provide as pure a meaning as possible without adding any meaning, right? And without adding any you know in in this in the case of something as sensitive as this because they're talking about the most intense stuff that could be happening in a person's life ever you know can't be adding any judgment it's like a, it's like a priest or something like that right um they really just have to basically be a pipe yeah for the information and you know you could tell to some extent that that these translators because you were an insane jerk of a kid did not like couldn't get it together right to be that way and you could tell because they kept quitting right yeah <laughs> they kept not coming back
1: well it wasn't just the interpreters you know it was um my one of my great pleasures as a youth uh, in Rehab, because at some point I went to rehab. When I, well, I, when I was thirteen, I went to my first rehab, and when I was uh, fifteen, I went to my second and my third. And I went to these to mental hospitals, and I was in, I, all all this kind of stuff. Uh, one of the things that I took the greatest pleasure in was finding a way to find a chink in the armor of the uh, veneer of professionalism in the adults that were surrounding me, because as you remember, I. Just hated adults, and I would poke my finger into that little chink in the armor, rip it open, and then my victory came when an adult would scream at me. When I had a therapist or an interpreter say, "You know, y- you," I thought I won. You know what I mean? And uh, so I would do that all the time. I would just crack every. I was like sort of Matt Damon in the uh, in the Goodwill hunting. Uh, You know, I would... You're sort
0: of like... I mean, I know what you're talking about. You're you're like bringing... You're bringing them... I mean, I don't want to say down to your level, but what it's about is about making them not be... If they're yelling at you, then they're not the boss of you.
1: That's right. Yeah. They're always telling me what to do. They're always thinking that they know better than me. And if I could get them to scream at me, I would just think, well, see? If you're
0: yelling at each other, then you're peers.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: So you had... You had one translator that um, didn't quit. And what I thought was interesting about him was that you could kind of tell that there was something about this dude that you could relate to. Sure. Which, I mean, it's funny to say it, but if you're the kid of deaf parents that is growing up white in a, you know... Uh, um, in a, in a uh a city where almost all the other kids are not white, and you know, all the other crazy circumstances that you had as a teenager, um, just like the idea of seeing an adult and thinking like, hey, I can kind of relate to that person, sure. like that is
1: actually really
0: significant.
1: <laughs> and actually, when you're in rehab and you're um. A patient in rehab, you do also start to identify with the, there are different, there are two different categories of counselors. There are the people that are clinicians who went to school and have a degree. And there are people who are themselves in recovery. And you can tell, the difference. They're, they have a different tone and a different affect and you relate to the ones. It's not that you love them. You just go, those are like more my people. These are people that themselves have had trials and tribulations and these are people that learned about people with trials and tribulations. So Mike had that vibe about him, you know, and he also had two deaf parents. I knew that. He was like me in that way and he, um, I got kicked out you know, and my mom left with me. You know, in support of me. They they said that she could stay, but she she said, you know, if you can't help my son, he's the one that needs help, and you're kicking him out. You know, I can't be here either. And she walked out, and the interpreter walked out because he had nothing left to interpret. And he did. He pulled me aside, and he said, um, in a in a severe violation of that prime directive, um, uh, he said, you know, I'm I'm in recovery. I I, I used to be an alcoholic too. And he's like, you know, I know you're angry and I know you think that you're a bad person, but you're not a bad person. You're sick. And uh, and I got well and you can too. And um, he said, you know, there'll come a time in your life when you're going to have to walk away from this life or you're never going to make it out. And um, and he gave me a hug, which is very inappropriate. and uh, at, for an interpreter to do, but it was definitely a moment of a of a window of of understanding opening in my life where i, th- I thought here 's this guy he 's like me deaf parents he's a, he you know, 's he's a you he's a an alcoholic and a drug addict like me, and he 's this cool guy, and I relate to him and It was really one of the first times I found an adult who I felt a kindred spirit with now i 'll say that the reason i 'm able to so flagrantly tell you this story. Uh, because he would be fi- fired. He would have been fired if I told this story publicly about him violating the code of ethics. Is that Mike st- started drinking again years and years later, and he died. Uh, he died of alcoholism. Um, and so you know he was like a little, a little. Um, he was a great guy, but he was also a person that definitely was a, a, a I don't know, a guardian angel or something. Some weird. He had some weird part to play in my life that allowed me to take that right turn that he suggested.
0: Something that you quote him saying in the book that um, I thought was really powerful in that, just in that little interaction, it was a really little interaction after he signed to your mom, are you going to snitch on me? Yeah, right. Um, Was he said, you know, you are going to have to walk alone. Yeah. And I think that, you know, Part of the message that you get when you're that age, part of part of what you learn when you are 16 years old is, and for the good sometimes, is that you will have the opportunity to have a life of your own, where you can make your own choices that don't have to be a response to your parents and the thing and the adults that you think are keeping you down. You know, I remember, I remember having that kind of realization around that age and, you know, having these horrible, horrible fights with my father and, um, you know, some, some with my mother as well. And, 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 I remember that the thing that brought me out of that was just thinking, oh, wait, like I am getting to the point where I can have my own life and it's hard because you have to do, you have to carry your burdens, but you can have it. Like that's the lesson that you get. You can
1: have your own thing. Right. I yeah, and I think that you one of the most familiar tropes in rehab for anybody that's ever been in an adolescent rehab or maybe in an adult rehab. Do I've never been to one? Um, is they just tell you they grind you and say you have to get rid of your friends. You won't make it unless you get rid of your play playthings, play, things, play uh, friends, and play places or something. Some playgrounds, playthings, and uh, playmates. That's right. Um, and you have to get rid of those things. And I just thought. I would ne- I'll i never do that. I'll never turn my back on this group of kids who are the only people who have ever understood me, the only people, this group of lost boys is the only group of kids that I've ever found that you know that I related to. My whole world, like you were, we were talking about earlier, was just to hang out with these kids. And I go to rehab, and these strange adult, these strangers who are adults are telling me, you know the most important thing in your life? Walk away from it. And I just thought, you know, I'll never do that. Even though, as the circumstances started to wind down and, and sink, you know my friends became violent towards me and towards each other. We were stealing from each other, and people were beating each other up and betraying each other and stealing things from their i mean it was a terrible group of people, but it was still all that I had and I just thought, never, I will never do this and I think, like you said, like eventually there came a time because of you know uh, information i received partially from this guy mike hicks and partially from my brain starting to mature into a a small bit of adulthood you know i was becoming almost 16 years old and so i was starting to have a more of a self-identity and and a a little bit of zooming out on my own life and sort of seeing what was happening i thought i have to i have to go my own way um and then that's the go your own way song started to play (laughs) and credits rolled
0: (laughs) It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian and writer Moshe Kasher. His new memoir is called Kasher in the Rye, the true tale of a white boy from Oakland who became a drug addict, criminal, mental patient, and then turned 16. Tell me a little bit about um, how you actually managed to get yourself... Changed enough to like actually go through the process of recovery.
1: Yeah, I, I, I've been asked a lot. You know, the book ends in this very dangly place. You know, it's like uh I people go. The book essentially ends the day that I get sober, um, and people are, are keep asking me. And I know that you didn't ask this question, but you know. Well, what was it? What happened? Well, like, they want a cinematic explosion. You know, they want this, like, and that's when I knew. I looked at my hands, and the hooker's blood were all over them. There was $60,000 in cash, and the mob was after me. That's when I knew. But, you know, they want a rock. When people talk about rock bottom, I think that they think about this this immediate, like, Plunge to the bottom But the thing is My life was a rock bottom You know (laughs) I was I hit rock bottom And then I sort of Drug myself along Rock bottom Day after day After day And I think that people are Uncomfortable with the tedium Of what addiction and alcoholism and mental health stuff really is it's not whiz bang it's day to day just like grinding it out you know the the movie groundhog's day is a very good example of what of what it was like it's like every day i woke up and every day was the same day and i thought to myself i'm not going to make it and this isn't going to happen for me I, i i i'm you know i'm 16 years old almost and i'm and i'm giving up uh and so there was not a thing that happened. The thing that happened is one day I decided today's the day that I'm going to, like we were talking about, walk alone. And it lit- it literally happened that I walked alone. All of my friends were going, uh, you know, they were going up the street in, in Oakland to this bar to go. There was some bar that would, I guess, serve 16-year-olds. It was called Kiddies, And uh, I'm kidding. So they were all going up this, the road and they said, come with us. But I had been trying to quit. I'd been trying to, and I wasn't trying to quit. I didn't want to get away from them. This is the, the thing. I didn't want to leave my friends behind, like I said, but I was coming to the realization that if I didn't change something, then nothing would ever change. And um, it, they were all going one way, and I said to them, I think I'm going to not join you guys today. I don't know where that willingness came from. I don't know why that day was different than any other day. I just know that all of my friends walked up the street to the bar, and I walked alone, away by myself into this what I didn't know then was my new life. Um that's the big message I guess and I'm not it's not I'm not I didn't write a book to try to help people get sober or anything like that but the big truth of of my life was that change started today. Uh, you know, a change started when I would made a decision that today's a day. I could have very easily uh the next day gone to the bar with them and you would not have me as a guest today. But I got um, I got lucky, and I got um, willing to to walk alone, and I did. You know, I walked alone into this new life, and I began uh, trying to change, and I, I guess I did.
0: Part of your story is that you know, when you decided to get better, I mean, you failed at it a number of times.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I uh, m- months before the last rehab I went to was a rehab that I checked myself into. I was looking at my life and I was just thinking – like I said, I was like, this isn't going to – I'm going to be like – I flunked ninth grade three times. I dropped out of seventh grade because I got beat up by an eighth grader. Uh, I'm sorry. Flip. Flip. I dropped out of eighth grade because I got beat up by a seventh grader. A much more embarrassing story. Um, I this kid, I slapped this kid. Hold in the on.
0: Face. Now that I think about it, I dropped out of college after I got beat up by a
1: kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, different strokes for different folks. I would never have let a child take advantage of me in that way. I would have totally beat the hell out of that kid. <laughs> but um, yeah, I was in eighth grade and I was this like gangster bad boy, you know. And this seventh grade kid came up to me and he said something smart to me. about i had just been in this mental hospital and uh and they were like he was like making fun of me about being in a mental hospital and he was a little bit more ghetto than i was or i don't even know at that point what but at any rate i slapped him in the face thinking that takes care of that (laughs) and he didn't share that philosophy i guess so he here's how the fight went he uh i would swing on him and he would dodge the punch you can actually move out of the way of a punch (laughs) And then he would come back in and punch me in the face. And then I would go, oh, that's smart. So I would swing again, and he would again dodge the punch and punch me in the face. Now, this went on and on and on until finally he just beat the hell out of me, and we both got uh, suspended. I had two black eyes. I mean, I guess the kid knew how to fight. I guess that was the idea. He used a
0: combination of floating and stinging.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's correct. He was Muhammad Ali. (laughs) That's where Muhammad Ali (laughs) (laughs) got his start from was beating me up. Uh, and when we, my suspension was over, I had two black eyes still. And my, I was like, I don't know what to do. I'm, I don't want to go back to school. And my mom was like, my mom, so, and I don't know if this was sadistic or helpful. She goes, you know, I could put some makeup on you and take the black eyes away. And so like a true gangster bad boy, I allowed my mommy to uh, put uh, basically to be my tranny trainer and dress. She sort of made me up like a, like a sort of geisha that listened to hip hop. And uh, so I went That's back- to really hood. <laughs> yeah. That's super hood. When you have the kimono on. You're like, nai, 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 nai. Uh, is that racist? I didn't mean it that way. Okay. I went in more of a kabuki singing kind of a way,
0: right? Oh,
1: sorry. So I went back to school in a suspension of disbelief that I can only attribute to a drug haze. I went back to school thinking no one will notice as I had like foundation caked on my face. And I went back into this school, and I was walking through the halls, and um, you know, people were making fun of me, like, "Dog, you got you got your ass beat by a seventh grader." And I was like, "I know, I know, I do." Uh, thank you for reminding me; I had forgotten. And um, and I, I I I was walking through the halls. Everybody's making fun of me, and finally, this kid named Cor- uh, Corn Nuts came up to me, <laughs> and um, I'm not sure that was his Christian name, but it was definitely what everybody called him. And Corn Nuts was like, "Damn, you got your ass beat by a seventh grader." And he looked dim deeper and I could see recognition in his eyes and he goes, is that makeup? And that was it. That was the end of my foray into middle school. I, that's when I dropped out of Claremont was I just could – I could take the shame of being beaten up but not the shame of the entire school knowing that I was in fact uh, a transgendered youth. And so I quit. I quit. I, I dropped out. And, I, and then I, I just
0: imagine that moment of recognition and then you just going – the jig is up. Yeah, Hanna Barbera.
1: Is your legs spin around and then? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I grab my two briefcases. I'm like, "Well, that's it for me. I'm out of here." Ring. So that you know. So that's when I dropped out of junior high. But then I got sent to that Seneca Center. But then I, got, I dropped out of there. And then I got sent to another place called CLC, the Children's Learning Center, where I was literally. I'm not. I'm not saying this to be uh, edgy. I was the only non-retarded student in the entire school the only one and at a certain point you have to say to yourself am I certain that I'm not retarded as well and I didn't know and I still don't know I dropped out of there I went back to school home studies dropped out of there went back to school and then finally I landed in, in Oakland Tech uh, at the very end, Oakland Tech is the public high school in my neighborhood. And I just started to think, I'm never going to make it out of this. I'm going to be a high school freshman for the rest of my life. I'm going to be like that cool older senior with like a beard and a Camaro, you know, who's like hitting on young girls or whatever. So I just thought, this isn't going to end. I'm never going to stop. I, I, and I thought, I'm gonna qu- I, I, I had this moment of realization where I thought, okay, that's it. I quit. I'm never going back. This is it. I'm done. I went to my drug dealer's house that day. I paid him for yesterday. I, I, uh, I, we smoked together one last time and I said to him, I'm done. This is it. I'm out of here. And he was like, I think that's cool because he could sense that I was started, starting to hit bottom. He was also a kid that I'd grown up with. And the next day when I went to his house to buy a bag, he looked at me and he goes, what are you doing here, man? You said yesterday that you quit and you're back again today. He's like, you really got a problem. So I'm here to tell the world if your drug dealer ever does an intervention on you, that is a strong <laughs> sign that it's time to get help. And that was my process. I started quitting every night and starting again every day. You know, So at night I would go to bed. I would think I can't do this anymore. I have to stop. I have to stop. This is the end. This is it. And I would wake up in the morning. And the desire to go get high would hit me. And you would think what would happen was an angel would pop up on one shoulder, a devil on the other. And the devil would say, hey, let's go get high. And then the angel would be like, don't go get high. Remember your declaration. And the devil would be like, forget your declaration. Let's do this, dog. Let's listen to some E-40. Yeah. And then the angel would be like, no E-40 for you. Come towards the light. And eventually that. Wait, the angel doesn't want you to listen to E-40? No, the angel does not like hip hop. The no. angel is a jerk. <laughs> That's right right but you would think that's what would happen The devil
0: sounds like he's quarterbacking well
1: exactly but that devil
0: what, sounds like a politician
1: that's right you would think that that's what would happen is that this devil would win out this evil inclination and be like come on dog let's go have fun and you'd be like i can't not do it and you would go towards the devil but what happens in actuality is there's no angel there's no devil there's only the thought let's go get high and you forget instantly about the declaration that you made you forget everything except i need to go get high and so you go get high uh, it's not a question of your morals crumbling it's a question of your brain being broken you're unable very hazy memory when i stare at a bottle of gin or at a 40 i forget all about everything else and the only thing is i think i could get relief in that never mind the fact that i know i'm not getting relief from it anymore or i wouldn't be quitting the night before all i think is i could get relief in that and i drink and i smoke and I wake up and realize there's no relief there. I quit. I'm never doing this again. Good night. I wake up. I think we should go get high. I go get high. I, I realize this isn't working. I have to quit. I quit. I go to bed. I wake up. I realize that I want to get high. I go get high. And it goes again and again and again. And that's the tedium of drug addiction. It's not that rock bottom sort of cinematic moment. It's that grinding at the bottom. And finally, I just found a way out. One day, I I, I didn't get high. Somehow, I got, um, you know, a miracle happened or something. I don't want to speak in too grandiose of terms because it's just my life. But one day, I took a right turn and I walked alone into this new life. And I started racking days together. Days turned into months, months turned in, into years, years turned into my life. And now I'm the guy that you have here on your podcast, a nice guy who's got a nice career going. And my mom loves me. And I got out of junior high and I got into college and, you know, all these kind of things. And I don't know what happened. So if, if the book doesn't reflect the mighty moment of realization, it's because there wasn't one. There was a, a small, quiet moment of luck.
0: So you're like a you're a grown up now. You're a successful. I'm a grown ass man. Comedian. Mm-hmm. Um yes you you are a grown ass man as by by the judgment of Cedric the entertainer.
1: That's so true.
0: Um you're you're a successful stand-up comedian um you know you've got a great career and as I was reading this book um I was thinking <laughs> about all the parts of this that I didn't know about you. I knew the Oakland part. Right. Um <laughs> When you have relationships with people, and I don't just mean romantic relationships. That's the
1: only kind I do, dog. Um, (laughs) I apologize to all your listeners.
0: (laughs) When you have relationships with people, I mean, even just as someone who professionally talks about himself on stage, but when you have relationships with people, do you have to think about how you parcel this information out?
1: It's an interesting question. You know, when I was younger, I was so proud of my trauma. I wore it on my sleeve. I would lead with that, you know, first date. Type. Oh, you know, I was in mental institutions, right? You know, I'm straight crazy. Ha <laughs> ha. I'm cray. Um, but as I've gotten older, it's harder to. Tra- I feel like maybe it's just mentally in my mind, I think this, but it's become harder to translate to people so that it's understandable. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's less like, I, I, you know, I have an adult. Well, brain. I think
0: maybe you get further from adolescence and then other people are further from their adolescence and from having adolescent friends. And so there's just less craziness. The people are less connected to the craziness of adolescence. I mean, maybe it's because I went to an arts high school, but I just, as I was reading this, like, yeah, sure. I had lots of friends who did crazy, had like my adolescence being slightly crazy was nothing compared to many of my friends' extremely crazy adolescence.
1: Yeah, no, and and people are buckling down for their newfound adult crazy. Yeah, yeah. but
0: at thirty, I'm I'm my crazinesses are have a very different tenor.
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, so how do I parcel the information out? You know, I mean, I'm I'm I. If I told you that I at this point in my life I am and am through with all of the trauma from the past. I feel like I am, but I think that i 'd also be lying to you i mean I, I think that the person that I am today, the complicated kind of guy that I am, is all informed by the the you know muscle memory of all this weirdness that I went through you know i I, I still have weird relationships with uh, romantic relationships, and I'm sure that has to do with my, my lovely, uh, um, the, you know, the matriarchs at the Amazonia man-hating society. Um, <laughs> I'm, I still have weird relationships with religion, and I'm sure that that has something to do with the Amish that I grew up with. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, I'm still a creature of this past. As much as I, I'd love to write this book and say, you know, this is this is my past and this is my future, it feels like that. I think it'd be kind of unrealistic, you know, I'm informed by all of this weirdness that I've been through.
0: I mean, Moshe, my experience is, and we're not close friends, but I've known you for a while, you do approach every interaction like it's a fight.
1: (laughs) Is that real? I mean, a friendly fight, a fun fight. Interesting. You really think so? Yeah. You mean on stage or in interpersonal? Well, like times 10 on stage, right. but
0: interpersonally as well.
1: Oh, I don't know if I like that. Um, but I get, oh, I don't know if I like that. And now I'm fighting with myself for my own voice, my own vocal choice. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I I think that's very interesting that you say that. Um, I, I try to be a creature of of limited conflict. but um, But yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, I've been fighting all my life, I guess. And so maybe that's how I've learned how to communicate, you know. I definitely approach sex like it's a fight. I'm kidding. <laughs> Come on, guys. Um, you know, I, I don't want to be a. I, I don't know. Um, I don't want to be approaching everything like it's a fight. But you know, like I said, you can't. You don't choose the person that you are. You know, uh, in some ways, it's just like just like on stage. Like I've always said that you don't choose your voice as a stand-up comedian. It chooses you. You know, like there's this um, there's a story of David and Michelangelo. Uh, uh, the Michelangelo. Somebody came up to Michelangelo and said, um. You know, how did you make something so beautiful as David? And he goes, he said, and he go, you know, Michelangelo, he go, um, well, I just took this piece of marble and I chipped away everything that wasn't David. And then that's what was left. And so I sort of feel like that's what you do on stage uh, to find your voice on stage. That's what you do as a writer to find your voice as a writer. And that's what I, you do as a human being to find your voice as a person is you just start chipping away things that aren't useful and aren't you. And what's left, um, apparently what's left is a, a, a little fighter. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Moshe, thank you so much for taking this time to be on Bullseye. It was,
1: it was really great to have you. Thank you for having me.
0: Moshe Kasher's new memoir is Kasher in the Rye. The true tale of a white boy from Oakland who became a drug addict, criminal, mental patient, and then turned 16. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Latif the Truth Speaker is an Oakland native and a founding member of the hip-hop collective and record label Soul Sides, which later became Quantum Projects. The crew formed at the University of California at Davis. Its members included DJ Shadow, Lyrics Born, and the duo Black Blackalicious. Latif has performed in several groups as an MC and appeared on countless singles. Late last year, he released his first solo album. It's called Firewire. For the heck of it, roll the kicks for the kids, not for empty
3: rhetoric, spitting it. Get the spot hotter than the kettle get. Whistling with rapid fire, lyrical aesthetics that are credited. we proving the legitimacy, talented, here again. Consider it autistic development, innovative like I'm Alexander Graham, bellin' it. Turning out the lights on the competition, dead detonin' it, electric, worldwide. Connected like the internet is. I make the melody move with a new alacrity, doing with you.
0: When he was a kid, Latif heard a song that changed his life Cloudburst, as performed by the jazz vocal group Lambert, Hendrix, and Ross. Latif says that it's all thanks to his dad.
7: As early as I can remember, I'd be in the car with him and he'd be listening to stuff like that. Jazz, especially kind of jazz percussionists and jazz scatters, jazz vocalists. And it was probably kind of strange hearing a five year old just say the words to that song. The structure of the song is almost like a underground rap song. There's the, the chorus that comes in at the top, which is very melodic. And then it goes into one long verse. Doom, 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 doom. Hey, baby, I'm gonna tell you about your loving and your kissing
8: and your humming and your sweet little doves pretty baby. I won't be satisfied till you play here. Yeah. Comes the ride. Listen to me, baby, and I don't know me, baby, listen to my story. It's too heavy to do. I want to find a way to tell you that I really go for you. I hope you believe me, baby, cause I certainly do
7: you can tell he had it memorized but it's almost he moves inside of the beat really young, organically
8: know you the
7: one the one get you It's a love song,
8: but it has a real attitude to it. Find a lover, find a lover, find a lover, find a lover. to find a little girl to make you love your life Don't have a that you really want to ruin the plot a breeze through the trees, boy Pleasant is one a breeze, boy well, I'm a lucky lover, a lucky lover a lucky lover
7: then there's a hook.
8: I and I was a my
7: then there's another little like just four bar.
8: Take a look at me bar, take another look, take another look, take another look, take another girl, look at
7: me, and i my eyes now it's just like one long verse. Hook short little bridge. Hook. the
8: old, the old, the old
7: Awesome like an underground rap song a lot of people say oh hip-hop started in the 80s or hip-hop started in the 70s and that song was recorded in 1959 but i made the connection very very early between hip-hop and and what they did and what jazz scatters in general did shadowing instruments and horns it just opened up for me the realms of possibility as far as what you could do vocally and what was possible and how it is that you didn't have to limit yourself. You could sing. You could do rapid fire percussion. You could make the song a love song and have it still have that kind of a, a swagger, that kind of an attitude to it where it was fun, upbeat, honest. All of those things. And then I think still today, you know, I listen to it and I hear I hear new things and hear new ideas and hear things that I'd like to try. So I think that... That particular song affected me early, and uh, it still affects
0: me now today. Changed my life Latif, the truth speaker, on the song that changed his life, "Cloudburst" by Lambert Hendricks and Ross. Latif's solo album, Firewire, is available now. After a break, I'll welcome some real-life Oscar award winners onto our program. Daniel Lindsay and TJ Martin are the directors of the documentary Undefeated. It's bullseye. We're MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. I listen to actually every show on Max MaxFun. You could say relentless positivity.
7: Um, that's probably a good way of putting it. They're always looking at things in the way I'd like the world to be looked at. Hi, I'm David.
2: And I'm Lindsay.
7: And we donate to MaximumFun.org.
2: Probably my brother, my brother and me, was the first full. Episode I listened to.
0: Yeah, Mbim Bam was a pretty great way to start her off because those McElroys are charming.
2: Listen to people be friends. <laughs> Best thing. I'm super excited about Throwing Shade and it's so funny and it's so charming.
1: Yeah, honestly, I feel like every, every year Max Fun adds new
0: shows and every year I step up my donation to make sure that more shows can join.
2: Yeah, I think it's really easy to support people who make fantastic things.
0: I get a ridiculous amount of entertainment for Max fun every month and it doesn't cost me a lot. Support Maximum Fun today. Just visit maximumfun.org/donate. Thank you. Hey gang, it's a special Max Fun Drive edition of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. I, of course, am Jesse Thorne.
5: And I'm Nick White, the editor of Bullseye.
2: And I'm Julia Smith, producer.
0: This is fun. I like having other people in the studio. Yeah, it's crazy, right? We should have a fun drive every week. Usually it's just me talking to myself like a drunk homeless man on the corner. (laughs)
2: Um, because, you know, the interviews aren't real. It's just Jesse putting
0: on a voice. Yeah, it's a Phil Hendry type situation. He's you should know really that. Good. <laughs> um, maximumfund.org slash donate is where you go to support our show during the Max Fund Drive. I, I just want to make it absolutely clear that no matter what level of, you know, no matter how much bank you're bringing home, uh, you can support Maximumfund.org and support the work that we're doing here on Bullseye and on all of the Maximum Fund shows. So we're going to take you through... Uh, on a little guided tour of the many pledge levels that we have on offer right now.
5: But first, can I say how great was that Latif uh, segment with uh, Cloudburst? It was a really fantastic talk,
0: dude. One time I went to a Latirix concert. Um, this is this is how, This is about how old I am. This whole thing. And one time I, when I was in co- back in college in Santa Cruz, I went to a Latirix concert, and uh, I was hanging out after the show, and uh, Latif came up to me and he said, "Hey yo, I saw you getting hype in the front row." <laughs> It's true. I was. I was getting hype in the front row. (laughs) Tyreks are great.
5: (laughs) I mean, it was just great to see uh, his influences from a very early... Point. And we get this, we, this is a new segment that we've been using much more often in Bullseye. These are the kinds of things that the new format lets us do, is kind of dive in. We had Dan Deacon on the first episode. Who else have we had?
0: I mean, we've done we, we've done a pile of these. I really enjoyed the Nico Muley one. Um, you know, it's it's rare for us to be able to get into contemporary classical music, but Nico Muley talking about Steve Reich was a really powerful one, I think. I mean, I think it's, I, I think that those kind of segments are the kinds of things that we can do when we have these sort of resources. I mean, you're the editor, Nick. You you can you can say honestly that cutting that four minute piece probably takes nearly as much time as cutting a thirty minute interview, but I think it's worth it. Sometimes it takes more time, you never know. But uh, it's it's really rewarding
5: to be able to bring those. Those are my favorite things that we do on the show.
0: Yeah. So anyway, I, I loved I loved getting to talk to Latif. Let, let's get down to the brass tacks and what people can get. Number one first of all, everyone who gives five bucks a month or more gets a treasure trove of bonus content. And that's uh, what
5: you're really here for too.
0: Yeah, podcasts. Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, so you get uh, My Brother, My Brother and Me, Stop Podcasting Yourself, Throwing Shade and Jordan Jesse Go episodes. Am I leaving anybody out? No. Yes,
2: you're leaving out Judge John Hodgman.
0: Judge John Hodgman, that's right. We did a special case of Judge John Hodgman. Julia also works on the Judge John Hodgman podcast. And you also get Rift short videos, three of them. One One by the stop podcasting yourself, guys. One by the brothers McElroy, and one by me and Jordan. Me and Jordan did one about posture. Hmm. It teaches people good (laughs) posture. I chose that one because I get uh, when I do every time we put out a put this on email, uh, put this on episode. I get angry emails about my posture. Just you know what, suck a lemon. (laughs) <laughs> and that is at $5 a month. Everyone who gives $5 a month yeah. get
5: those bonuses. Absolutely. What about $10 a month? Then you are a friend of the family. You get a MaxFun friendship bracelet, which are beautifully woven with the MaxFun colors. They are small, lightweight, soft, and <laughs> completely unisex. Boys or girls.
0: Gentlemen or ladies. Uh, here's the rule with these things. Uh, we I have confirmed this so far with the brothers McElroy and Jordan. But Jordan, myself, and all three McElroys will give you a hug If you meet us in public and you're wearing one of these bracelets Now, I have said I will not allow any humping or pelvic connections in this hug Mine will be a non-pelvic hug However, Jordan is on record You
2: might be able to get away with that with somebody else is what you're saying
0: Jordan is on record as saying he is a single man And he will just let the hug go where it needs to go so there you go. This is a powerful friendship bracelet.
5: And if and at $10 a month, you get the uh, the Friend of the Family level. You do get those bonus episodes as well. All the levels get the bonus episodes.
0: Everything is cumulative, folks.
5: Our next level is $20 a month. This is the Diamond Friendship Circle. You get a stainless steel water bottle with the MaxFun Rocket logo. Julia, tell us about this, because I think you were looking at them just a day ago, right?
2: Well, I was. I would uh, Teresa and I were thinking, you know, like, what kind of thing does everyone sort of want to have but doesn't have. I mean, okay, so maybe you have your BPA water bottle that you've been looking to replace with something that is a little more uh, you know. A little
0: more BPA free.
2: Right, exactly. And um, and we found these really cool stainless steel water bottles. Um, and, uh, you know, Slap the logo on that. It's tasteful. It's simple. People won't think you're a weirdo, and you know, you know, you'll be saving the environment.
0: You know what? I'd like to stand up on behalf of all of the stuff that we give away during the Max Fun Drive. we we got some tasteful stuff. It's very it's tasteful. Good. It is good. Next level, thirty five dollars a month. Uh, this is my favorite one. Can I talk about this one? Yes. I'm sorry that I'm I'm sorry that I'm breaking up our flow here, but I love this one. This is the emergency friendship kit. Here's the deal: if you're on a train and all of a sudden some friendship breaks out. If you're on, uh, if you're in your backyard, and all of a sudden some friendship breaks out. If you're at home minding your own business, and then all of a sudden some friendship breaks out. If you're at the post office, and friendship breaks out, you have to be prepared. You're going to need an emergency friendship kit. We've put one together for you, and it is going to change your life. Nick, tell them what's inside it. Half a bag of Tonks coffee. Oh, this is the good this stuff. This is a
5: really great coffee subscription service. You know, it helps it helps caffeinate and get the social juices flowing.
0: Come on, we've seen lady commercials. We know what friends bond over a hot cup of coffee. Max Fun playing cards. These are actual playing cards that we have created with the Max Fun logo on them for your Pinnacle games. Pinnacle. Pinnacle. What's that? It's a card game. Pinnacle. Nick. P- Pinnacle. 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 Oh, they look great. Yeah, they look tremendous. The next thing is Mad Libs. Mad Libs. What could be more fun than playing Mad Libs with your friends? Two bubblegum cigars. That's important because regular cigars give you cancer, and that's not fun. Like Bippas. Bippas also give you cancer. So we're Bippa-free and bubblegum cigars to prevent cancer. Two packets of Alka-Seltzer for hangovers. That's in case you party too hard with your friends. Two temporary tattoos with Max Fun Rockets. That's because what can, what is more friendly than getting a matching tattoo with your friend? That's Head- BFF territory.
5: Headphone splitters to be able to listen to all your podcasts uh, together. That one was Julia's idea, and a great idea it was. Box of Cashy Good Friends breakfast cereal. Uh, this is uh,
0: this good. is the only friendship-themed breakfast cereal on the market today. <laughs> you're, you're guaranteed to get a picture of two ethnic uh, middle-aged people on the cover. <laughs> Plus some best friends necklaces. Oh, this is the kind of necklace where, you know, it's like a heart and it's broken down the center, but you get one half and your friend gets the other half. And then... beef,
2: beef fry four? Yeah. Is that on one side?
0: Yeah. Something... And then the other side. Yeah. And then you match them together yeah. and then, then you become best friends. You know what I'm talking about, Nick. It's a powerful symbol of friendship. Alright, next level, $50 per month The Thorn Family Blondie Brigade This is so popular, it's coming back Yeah, people went ape over this And I enjoyed it very much too Uh, uh, Those of you who know me well Know that I can't eat chocolate So I've become a specialty at non-chocolate based baking Now the reality is that most non-chocolate baking stinks However, Blondies, the butterscotch brownies are actually quite tasty. So I have a special recipe, a family recipe for blondies. I will bake blondies here at my home, in my home kitchen, and FedEx them to your door if you join at the $50 a month level. Uh, Dozens of people have done it. Uh, It has changed their lives immeasurably for the better. Um, I think you should do it too You're going to love these blondies And you're going to love them Because they are a powerful symbol of friendship Immeasurable Yeah
5: Immeasurable
0: Cannot be measured
5: $50 a month Maximumfund.org Slash donate And you get all the other stuff we mentioned All that other stuff Plus this a month, Jesse's Golden Eagles.
0: This is a special level where not only do you get every single thing that we listed the blondies and the whole nine yards, the friendship kit, etc., etc., etc. You also get to join us at the most special evening of the Max Fun year, which is the Max Fun Dinner. This is the night before. Max FunCon here in Los Angeles. We all get together for a special dinner paid for by MaximumFun.org, where our most beloved donors and a lot of our most beloved people, like uh, John Hodgman and and all of our podcasters and everybody, gets together to share a meal and have fun and meet each other and it is really a special wonderful event and um, you know you get to meet other other supermax Funsters. it's just great it's been so wonderful to meet the people who really make MaximumFun.org possible and also spend time with with our our just best creative pals
5: next level is $200 a month Jordan's Platinum Angels
0: when Jordan heard that I had a Golden Eagles level he decided that his level was going to be the Platinum Angels level which is better than Golden Eagles. Um, Jordan's level involves not only the invitation to the special VIP dinner and all of those other wonderful gifts. It also involves a special VIP invitation to Max FunCon. Um, wherever you live in the country, we will get you to you will we will get you a ticket to Max FunCon. You will join us at what is the specialist weekend of the maximum fun year. Uh, you will celebrate with us. Uh, Max FunCon is currently sold out. However, we will get you in, um, either this year or next year, whatever is your preference. Um, and it will be awesome. I promise you that.
5: It will be a really good one this year.
0: So no excuses. Whatever your ability to pay is, you have a level that fits your budget. Maximumfund.org slash donate is where to go. And the time to do it is right now. Tweet about it. Hashtag Max Fund Drive brag about it we encourage you post on the forum get your special forum badge all of these things but remember that the people who pay for this show is you you pay for it if you like it pay for it
5: and to those who have already stepped up this drive or in previous drives thank you very much you are really what makes this possible you're why Julie and I have a job you're why Jesse has a job you're why Teresa has a job thank you very much thank you
0: thank you you rule maximumfund.org slash donate let's get back to that great show it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. A few months ago, I was at a taping of the great Slate podcast, Hang Up and Listen, in New York. And my friend Mike Pasco, one of the hosts, made a bold claim. He said he'd just seen a movie called Undefeated and that it was the best sports documentary he'd ever seen. So when he said that, there was the start of a murmur from the crowd, but he cut it off. Yes, he said, better than hoop dreams. At the time, it sounded like the ravings of a madman, and, you know, maybe it was the ravings of a madman. But I sure am glad that I made a note then to look up a movie called Undefeated. It's a film about a high school football team in North Memphis. For decades, it was a terrible, terrible team, sometimes with so few players that guys had to play offense and defense out of necessity. It was transformed slowly over the course of years by a volunteer coach named Bill Courtney and a generation of players energized by his leadership. Courtney says that there's a story under every helmet, and the film focuses on a few of those stories, as well as Courtney's own. My guests on the show are Dan Lindsay and T.J. Martin, the directors of the film, who lived in Memphis for nine months while they were shooting the over 500 hours of footage that they used to make me cry like four different times over the uh, ninety minutes or two hours or so that the film runs, uh, gentlemen, uh, welcome to Bullseye.
9: Thank you very much Thank for you. having us,
0: and congratulations. Between uh, when we first uh, when we first invited you on this program and today, as you sit in this studio, uh, you are not only nominated for an Oscar uh for best documentary you then won it so that was just for you good (laughs) good work guys (laughs) thank you very much good work on that one so um you guys originally went to memphis to check out the story of one of the players on this team a kid named oc um at the time a kid named oc now a young man named oc um, tell me a little bit about what you knew about him when you went down there and just what you knew about what you were heading down to check out.
9: Well, our producer, Rich Middlemas, found an article uh, in the Memphis Commercial Appeal, which is the the paper there, and it was it detailed how OC had kind of come onto the recruiting scene, uh, college recruiting scene, kind of out of nowhere as a result of this YouTube video that uh, one of his coaches had posted up online, and suddenly he was getting all of these all of this attention from Division one colleges, and his grades weren't exactly in the best shape, and so the Coaches had conspired to, you know, get him a tutor, try and raise his grade, so he could take advantage of this opportunity. Uh, but they couldn't find a tutor that would go into his neighborhood at night. And so, um, Bill Courtney, the volunteer coach, and Mike Ray, the other coach, decided, "Well, he can just live with Mike, you know, and a tutor will come to his house." So, the what was interesting in the article to us was. The, O.C. being a 16-year-old kid at the time, being kind of shuttled between these two disparate worlds. One of the, the – Coach Mike lives in a very affluent area of North Memf- or of Memphis and O.C. lives uh, with his grandmother in North Memphis. And so he was kind of being shuttled between these two disparate worlds and, and that was interesting to us, uh, enough to get us to go to Memphis and just meet this guy and see what this world looked like. Um, and then it was there that we met Coach Bill Courtney heard about the history of Manassas and the program there, and that was kind of when we decided to shift our focus.
0: What were your first impressions of North Memphis?
10: North Memphis, uh, I think, between the two of us, it kind of blew our minds. I mean, we'd independently done a considerable amount of traveling over the years. Um, And in the U.S., I know I can speak for myself, I'd never seen poverty on that level before and so i think first stumbling upon north memphis you there's a great sense of shock that of the level of like the fact that there is there is such an underserved community that exists like this in, in the U.S., and, um, you know, I think it kind of made it that much more urgent for us to kind of tell the story and, and actually kind of find some of the other narratives that are taking place in, in a community like North Memphis.
0: It feels kind of different than what you – I mean, like I, I – when I saw it on screen, it wasn't something that I recognized. It, it looked half abandoned. It yeah. looked
10: ravaged.
9: Well, a, a teacher at the school described North Memphis as, it looks like New Orleans after the flood. We just never had a flood. So when you got to this
0: school, I think there's this thing about making a, a, a documentary film, which is something that... Uh, Uh, The great Ira Glass, I think, probably discovered when he made a TV version of This American Life, which is one of the tricky things about documenting something in film form is that you have to be there as it happens or else it's boring, Mm -hmm. you know, because otherwise all you can do is uh, is try and zoom into and out of photographs of something Ken Burns style, you know, which is okay, but it's not that great. Yeah. You know, while someone talks about it in voiceover. Right. And. I think you, maybe you discovered that uh, some of the drama of OC's story had already
9: occurred. It was what had happened in that article as, that sent you there. It's actually the conversation me and Rich had on the flight back, um, you know, we we were like, "It's really compelling," and there are going to be interesting things that are going to happen to him over the course of this year. But the main you know the main thing of this story has already unfolded, and we were we all three of us talked and said, but you know what 's really interesting is what Bill has done um, at the school, and that this is the senior year for a group of kids that really were the 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 class that turned it around, and we thought okay well there's at least a premise." And Bill told us a lot of really interesting anecdotes of things that had happened in the past. And that was kind of when we said, man, if we just showed up, if we could capture one or two of those types of things in front of the camera, you know, we and, and with the spine of the season, you know, we could have a, a somewhat interesting film. We just never in a million years could have predicted – what would transpire over the year over the yeah. course of that season, and then how interconnected um, those storylines would
10: end up being? I don't know if you want to tell them about the the turtles. Yeah, thing. I
9: mean, we just when we went down to meet OC, we were still looking. We wanted to find another player that could juxtapose OC's storyline. Like, who is the kid on the team that's doing everything right, uh, but isn't doesn't have the physical? Um, you know stature and the athletic prowess to actually go off to play Division One. So, so we found money, this kind of classic overachiever, and we went over to his house and and uh, or met him there and said, you know, we're going to put a mic on you and we just want to film and put a mic on him. And I said, okay, show me around your house. And the first thing he did was he goes, well, over on the side here, I have my pet turtles.
3: That's my favorite animal, actually, because it's like.
9: Turtles is like a human being to me, because it's like
3: they gotta be hard on the outside and they but they really soft on the inside. Just look at at the texture of them. See, uh, this is like a human. On the outside everybody wanna be hard and show their strength, but on the inside it's like they just all flimsy and you know,
9: just skin and bones clearly was so thoughtful and self-aware of his life and um, and uh, and had a goal to get out of memphis and so that just as a character you know that was either going to happen for him or it wasn't and that was that's what we i mean immediately kind of latched onto him and said let's follow this guy
10: that was kind of where we saw that here's a unique world where so far the individuals that we're meeting are very emotionally and honest in front of the camera and candid in front of the camera
0: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Daniel Lindsay and T.J. Martin. They're the directors of the documentary Undefeated. In February, the film won an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. I want to play a clip of uh, Coach Courtney, and this is him relatively early on in the movie, basically just talking about the stuff that has gone down on the team just in the first, like I think it's probably three, four weeks of uh, of the season that you guys cover in the film.
4: Let's see here: starting right guard shot, no longer in school. Starting will linebacker shot, no longer in school. Two players fighting right in front of the coach when he's trying to make things work out. Starting center arrested for shooting somebody in the face with BB gun. Most coaches. That would be pretty much a career's worth of crap to deal with. I think that sums up the last two weeks for me. And you know what? I know damn good and well what I sign up for every year. And I keep coming back because I love this program. And I feel very responsible to make sure that you guys have a a football season that you can be proud of. And I will kill myself to make that happen. This is our season. I don't care what happens.
0: Describe how uh, this coach struck you when you first (laughs) met
4: him.
10: Now I think he's the most charismatic man I've ever met. Then, uh, first thing I saw was a salesman. And I think it took me a little bit longer to warm up to coach Bill than I think.
9: Well, I I also was on those two trips the first time. So you were, the first time that you saw, you just saw when we were sending footage back to Cut. Like, you were just seeing him on screen he's literally
0: a salesman. Yeah, well, he yeah. was
9: a used car salesman. That's how he started out and then he um and then he started uh, he was a salesman for a lumber company. Love him or hate him, he does tend to kind of control the conversation.
10: It's all earnest, it's all it's just the nature of his of his kind of his demeanor, you yeah. know. And 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 people tend to listen. And he he's a natural born leader. That's the best way I can yeah. really describe him. And then you know, also You know, for for people who haven't actually seen the film, just to give context, Bill is also from East Memphis, which is much more fluent, predominantly white. And, you know, our story takes place in North Memphis, which is, like Dan said earlier, it's an underserved community that is predominantly black. So you have this volunteer coaches, you know, led by Bill, who is white, with an all-black team. So um, in terms of—
0: And the other other volunteer coaches are mostly white as well. Mostly white, yeah. They're— from from his church or his it's a combination, combination yeah Mike stuff, was his yeah.
9: neighbor you know another guy he knew from church and other yeah I mean it's and then like coach Clark is his son played on one of the yeah. junior teams um, so yeah it's just a combination
0: yeah tell me what it was that that you saw that made you feel like oh I'm not just making a movie about you know a benevolent savior yeah. or some sort yeah, yeah. but you know a, a, a benevolent powerful white guy who saves young black boys as long as they're boys well, i
9: mean it's it wasn't i mean it's it just clearly wasn't the case so it was you know again on the surface level when we looked at it that was something that tj and i were very adamant we did not want to make another white knight story um but it was clear that that wasn't – once we were there, it was clear that wasn't the case.
10: Yeah, Bill is an amazing orator and he's very careful with his words and, and, and rightly so. He, I mean it's – the other thing you'll recognize in the film that there is – and a lot of times I think when you have a White Knight story, there is this sense of um, – there's A, there's a power dynamic and there's a sense of there's us and then there's the other and there's them. And never Bill never – you never got that element of here, like, you know, we are not just that we're we're saving them in the literal sense, but there's never a a a, a, um, a divide between who he is and his experiences and who the other volunteer coaches are and the the players, like them, the other, this kind of you know, a, a, them being the disenfranchised community. He also never um,
9: demands respect from like just because I am who I am you know you need to respect me he always says like it is about me earning their respect um I am I can lead by serving them and I think he sees himself in a lot of them it's Bullseye
0: I'm Jesse Thorne my guests are Daniel Lindsay and T.J. Martin they're the directors of the documentary Undefeated the film follows the struggles of a Memphis high school football team and its coach Bill Courtney and focuses primarily on three players O.C., money and chavis the third player that you profile is this kid named chavis who sort of really just muscles his way into the story (laughs) i mean i can't literally. yes he does (laughs) (laughs) i mean i i can't imagine that you could have made this film and cut him out of it i mean he just he's just such a lightning bolt
9: well one of the when he arrived after like Three or four days, one of the coaches went up to Bill. And was like you got to get him off this team. This guy's a cancer to the team, and that's a pretty good <laughs> way to describe, yeah. yeah, to describe his first uh, several weeks with the team. So but,
0: he had come from he, he had come to school straight from juvenile detention,
9: right? Yeah, he went he went to Manassas his freshman year uh and then as Bill had told us he just kind of disappeared one day and later found out that he had been arrested and um and was put in a not even a juvie hall, like a, a youth penitentiary so. Yeah. Um and uh which <laughs> we discovered when we said what was that like? And he's like it was like jail. I don't know. I was in a jumpsuit. And <laughs> he was just like. I remember when we asked him that question. I felt very uncomfortable. Um, he, uh, but you know, he is still a. He was a teenager, a kid who had made some mistakes, and Bill saw a lot of himself in him, a lot of the anger that Bill had growing up about his own father not being there. I think he he saw in Chavis, and um, and so he welcomed him back to the team with open arms, and uh, puts up with a lot of stress and strain and um like we said we didn't even put some of it in the film because it just became repetitive
10: one of the, our favorite anecdotes is that we did a we did a, a screening for an educational screening for a group of high schoolers and, and middle schoolers and literally the first question when we did Q&A with them was so uh were you scared of Chavis <laughs> it's a very easy answer yes the first couple of weeks he he's got a physical presence that is um is intimidating
9: but he's also he's also extremely intelligent. Yeah. Um, but his his ability to communicate that has not he hadn't caught up with
0: That's head. something that I mean in watching the film, the thing that strikes you about this kid is he's just got these crazy, like fire bright, crazy sharp eyes. Yeah. And the kid is intense.
9: Yeah. Extremely and, and- you know, but again, it's – I think his intelligence, he is really – he's very aware of the world around him, extremely aware. And I think he also can see through, you know, th- through the bullshit of adults. You know, he can see when somebody – you know, whereas I think uh, maybe other kids don't see when they're getting sold something or when they're being told one thing and somebody's doing the other. Chavis is extremely aware of it and he does not – he's not very forgiving for that.
0: There was a really interesting moment when um... – uh, Coach Mike, I guess it is, who, mm-hmm. who at whose house o- O.C. lives, says, you know, people say, why are you doing this? It's just because this guy's good at, f- good at football. And we say, it just so happens that I know a little something about football, and if I knew about playing piano, I would do this for a concert pianist. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, part of me is nodding along to him saying that, and part of me is is saying... Yeah, sure, but, but you know, concert pianists don't wear their concert pianist shirt to school on concert piano day, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. They don't wear their tux to school on concert day, you know what I mean? Like, there's not, they, you know, the whole school doesn't go out to the concert piano thing. There's not a team of concert piano volunteers at, the concert piano practice, yeah.
9: I, well, I think it's. I think in that particular thing, I think it's too. There's a micro, which is not to say that. Yeah.
0: Which is not to say that his he's insincere at exactly. all. I mean, this man is hosting some hosting a child in his house that yeah. doesn't belong to him. Yeah. He's obviously sincere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
9: Well, that's uh, what, that's what I mean. Like on the micro level in that yeah. specific example, it is that he is being completely genuine. and I think that is how he sees it. On a more macro level, there is you know you do have to look at how often the star athlete is given so much um treatment and i think there is some but that's a cultural thing i yeah. think that's just
10: it's easier that is by nature we as american north americans we put sports on a pedestal so it's just it's a little bit more in our psyche and it's a little bit more accessible and it's and it's, it's in our landscape i think that's much more of a cultural thing than anything personally
9: I, but there's also issues of like somebody seeing themselves in you know I, you, mike obviously sees a bit of yeah. himself in oc and wa- and and wants him to achieve you know i'm sure there is in some ways the dream because he got hurt, the dream that he wanted to achieve of playing in the NFL maybe it wasn't going to happen, and he sees the possibility of, of OC. Um, I don't know. But so, that's, so, I, don't, I don't. I don't. I don't think that's a negative. That's just like you, you see opportunities that you miss. Natural. Yeah. I think
10: so. For example, my parents were musicians growing up, and <clears throat> excuse me, I, I played drums. My father was a guitar player. The amount of people I saw him develop a close relationship that were kids my age, but not me because they wanted to be a guitar player and that the type of the bond he would have with them was amazing. That happened time all the time. But I, again, I think it's, it's, I think it's much more of a cultural thing. And I think it's much more, I think it's a natural instinct. Sports movies
0: have a very well defined arc. Um, and you have, um, you know, there's a certain extent to which you don't control the arc of your film because uh, invent events in <laughs> real life <laughs> control the arc of yep. your film, um, but I, I wonder how you, as filmmakers, approached the relationship between your role as as you know representatives of um, you know represent whether, whether your whether you felt your ultimate responsibility was to. Creating a, an emotional, a, an emotionally compelling narrative um, relative to uh, creating a, I guess what you might call a journalistically accurate representation of events.
9: Yeah. Well, I don't know that which they is necessarily to say have that to they, be mutually exclusive. Yeah. Like, which is
0: not to say that you would lie or yeah. something like that.
9: What, what What was amazing is you know we we didn't really set out to make a sports film. We actually were rejecting that for a long time because we were like oh great another you know on paper uh, we me and tj i say on paper we would never go see our movie like you know it's <laughs> like oh great i've seen that a million times you know uh, oh, underprivileged crazy, kids, magic so like, white guy yeah. <laughs> yeah. and uh so we were always more interested in doing this kind of you know um understated understated what? observant kind of like this so thing deep. yeah you know like yeah, like the Terrence Malick version of, like, <laughs> um, of uh, a high school football team or something. You just, I don't know. You just big up yourself yeah, on that exactly. one. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. I'm, that's why we failed. Um, and uh, But after um, several weeks or a month or something – You
0: didn't like, want to make a movie like the movie you ended up making. Yeah, you wanted to make a, the kind of movie that might win you an Oscar. <laughs> exactly.
9: <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean it's just it, everything started to unfold on the field. And it started to, and then as events, and then we were like, okay, well, we're making a sports film. Like this is a film about football. So, it, but it's not obviously when you see the film. But um, so we we couldn't, you know, we couldn't deny that the drama was happening in and around the team. And then as things started to unfold, we, you know, TJ and I talk every night about story. I mean, it's just all we're ever talking about. Like, how does this fall into the greater narrative of what we're, feeling? and then it, it, it suddenly we were like, wow, this is actually unfolding. Like a cliche sports film, and so we just decided to embrace that because um, I I haven't seen that in a I've seen it in a you know a ton of sports films, but I haven't necessarily seen it in a documentary. Um, and so, or at least what
10: as as or- as. Well executed or like yeah. you know, where it actually works, like the elements you're pulling from narratives actually work. Or where it
9: doesn't just become about uh, like the X's and O's of football yeah. and you have like an under, you know, like because that was never important to us. The games were always going to re- represent something about the, the human story that's happening. You um,
0: open the film with Coach Courtney talking about how this isn't about football. Yeah, but the thing about sports is that the thing that makes sports so great. And I mean, I'm a sports fan. Like, I'm not like a crazy, passionate sports fan, but I, I like sports. Yeah, the thing that makes sports great is that unpredictable story is compelling every single time mm. because our brains have like want that narrative. You must know yeah. <laughs> who wins right? Yeah. And that just like, but on the other hand, like when you're trying to make something that's not about football, that can in part be in conflict.
9: Yeah, Well, but it's also the, I mean, it's the oldest story. I mean, think about it. David and Goliath. I mean, an underdog sports film is David and Goliath, right? And then you add into the fact that in in this, you don't know who's going to win. It does create a kind of Tension, for lack of a better term, for the audience. You know, the, the, you have a you have a story that has been proven for thousands of years to be interesting to people, and then you don't know how it's going to end. That's just naturally engaging, I think. And in
0: in, par- in part, that. I think maybe you're you, the, the the what what happens in in the structure of the film that the that these ideas are what you're making a film about, and the sports kind of intrudes because it's just so compelling to our guts is sort of like what happens with a coach that wants to change kids lives or uh, something like that like and wants to say football's not what this is about except that like we just
10: love football <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it's uh, our culture it, loves football it is, because it's, it's compelling yeah i mean but the the football i mean and like you know like i would i would i would like to believe that any you know quote-unquote genre-wise sports film is hopefully anyone any of them that actually have an emotional effect on somebody hopefully there's something greater being explored there i mean the the if if you were to not uh, we always say that you could you could you could replace football with soccer you could replace football with painting you could replace football with chess it just happens to be the so, you know, a lot of our characters were seniors in the the students were seniors uh over the course of the season that we followed. There's still going to be an outcome at the end of that senior year in terms of what they do with their the, the next stage in their life. It just happens to be that football was were the tools that were maybe going to affect that and to change that, you know.
0: I want to play this uh clip of coach Courtney um He's talking um, relatively early on about um, dealing with uh, dealing with losing.
4: The character of a man is not measured in how he handles his wins, but what he does with his failures. And tonight we failed. And everybody says when you get these inner city kids down, they'll lay over and you'll beat them by forty. Not us. Everybody will say they're 0-1, they're going to fold up camp. They'll be 2-8 by the end of this thing. No, not us. You walk with your chins up. I am proud to be a Manassas Tiger on this field night because my guys did lay down. They got heart. Now let's put our mind with our heart and our bodies and let's finish this thing this year.
0: I mean, that's a really powerful uh, that's a really powerful thing
10: oh extremely i mean it made and it, it helped, made it the... helped us finish the film yeah
0: <laughs> there's something about hearing it from coach courtney too that um i found very powerful because he's not um um you know he, he's eloquent but he's not um you know, Mario Cuomo, or mm. you know, Malcolm X, or something.
9: Cuomo and Malcolm X. I think that is a good you know, group. <laughs> a, couple,
0: <laughs> a couple, of very eloquent speechifiers, yeah, 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 right? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, and I mean, there's there's something about him that feels like um, uh, that he's just a that he's just a guy who's has the guts to just be there and take care of business and do it.
9: Yeah, I think, well, he has a lot of pride, I think, too. And I think he wants to, you know, he wants to succeed and achieve in the things that he does. So when he does something, he does it all the way. I don't think he knows, I don't think he knows two speeds in no, some ways. Yes. Yeah.
10: But I, what I think is interesting about him is he, I think he does recognize that about himself, but I think he also sees that in others and he just always, it, like, it hurts him to see someone who has a lack of confidence. He wants to help find that confidence within them because he he truly genuinely believes that people can accomplish things if they just set their mind to it. And he's just he's kind of a living, breathing testament to that. But he, he really does see that in others.
0: Well, guys, uh, congratulations again on uh, the Oscar. That's really remarkable and, and also uh, well-deserved. And thanks oh, for thank taking you. the time to be on Bullseye. Thank, thank you, very you very much. much. Dan Lindsay and T.J. Martin's Oscar-winning documentary is called Undefeated. It's screening in select cities, including New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago, and will be released in more cities in the coming weeks and months. Go to undefeatedmovie.com for details. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's The Outshot. If you're a hip-hop fan, you know about the classic records that came out of Atlanta's Dungeon Family in the 1990s. Outcasts ATLians, and Okwim and O'Quimini are among the best rap albums of the decade. Goody Mob's Still Standing and Soul Food aren't far behind. But I don't want to talk about Andre 3000 and Big Boy and CeeLo. This isn't about international superstars. My favorite record from the peak years of the Dungeon Family, the late 90s, is by a guy who probably has a day job these days. His name is Witch Doctor, and the album is called A Swat Healing Ritual. Witch Doctor has an eccentric talky flow, and his lyrics match that. He conflates Africa and the ATL, spitting about a strange mix of shamanic religion and street life. The SWAT in the title is Southwest Atlanta, and Witch Doctor's goal seems to be to veil the hood in a haze of the ancient.
3: EJ on a Monday, the day after Sunday. There's an island we travel to, such a fun day. There's some girls there, it's like a whole world there. I first saw her dance in the holy temple to a piano instrumental. The people watched her every move. I sat and watched, damn, she makes me want to drool.
0: Hip-hop is usually a singles genre. Albums are compilations of hits and would-be hits. Basically, incoherent piles of songs. A SWAT healing ritual is exactly the opposite. From the opening bars, it sets a strange and distinctive tone. It's street and mystical at the same time. There's no standout track, really, but the album hangs together tight. A 60-minute journey through the mind of of a truly unique talent. It's a little bit beautiful. A little angry, a little sad, and lonely. Interludes bleed into tracks that barely have hooks. It's an experience as much as it is a collection of songs.
3: What is the Dungeon Family and where does Witch Doctor fit in? The Dungeon Family, the DL. That's like a, uh, that's a mob, mob, mob. Goody mob, outcast, organized noise. That's the whole DL. There's a thousand others in the DL. I can keep naming, baby, you gotta come with me.
0: In some ways I think the unabashed strangeness of a SWAT healing ritual makes it the ultimate Dungeon Family album. Unabashedly Hood, unafraid to be mystical. We once booked Witch Doctor on the show for an interview, and he didn't show up. Maybe it's better that he remains a mystery. I
3: had a dream I came up on a key. sit down, all up and brought back Put a big trap on the map. Talking in cold they case cool, Dwight got the phones tapped. We got dial wickets with all types of skills. From gun running, cooking, dope, stolen wheels. The cheese was coming in with a grin. We all up in the club, straight to spend. Ain't by the hundred sipping more. Didn't know they cooked wine taste the same, but only cost four dollars. That might have described my empola. They see you won't shoot me without thinking about dollars. Had the stream, them keys ghost get half a meal. Moved away, all of age at the crib. Now I feel like God. Talking like a man whose face had the Look, uh, we all know who you are. If I only had $12, I still feel like I'm stuck. I tried to stay up in my thinking, listen close to this dream. Don't run off and smoke, no thanking. I don't use cocaine, but in this dream I was tootin'. Got this rappin' at the club and went to shootin'. Blood running down my nose. That it, nigga it swung on me, I pointed my gun and he froze. He said, Come on, me, come on, me. Oh, it was you, put the trigger he was through.
0: That's my outshot. That's it for Bullseye this week. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Julia Smith is our producer. Nick White, our editor. Our interns are Joe Molinelli and Justin Morissette. Our theme music, Huddle Formation by the go team thanks to them and their label memphis industries for letting us use that you can find us online at maximumfun.org you can email me if you have thoughts about the show jesse at maximumfun.org and remember all great radio hosts have a signature sign
2: production of bullseye with jesse thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog put this on Presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every sixty days. More information at putthison.com and by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com.
0: Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation.
3: PRI, Public Radio International.